You're listening to episode 210 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. It's the spooky season, ladies and gentlemen. We have a skeleton. It's me. We do where? My face? He's, he's right there. He's right He's oh. ne- right next to me. You don't see him? Oh. Uh, Sean, are you yeah, blind? Very, very MF Doom-like. I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially with the headphones. Mo- very mo- much. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucking Doom. That's right. Straight right up. there. Oh, that's kind of cool, Pete. About to go uh, work I mean, on a, sorry. an adult swim bumper. Motherfucking Doom. <laughs> yeah. It's really call scary. It, just call, call him Mr. by his Christian MF name. Doom. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is today uh, Halloween. So happy Halloween to all of you who are listening. Of course, for you guys, Halloween has already passed, and we sound ridiculous. But, but it's also in your heart. Sure. It's always the spooky season in your heart. We <laughs> We brought along a special guest to ride out this scary holiday, um, and he actually might have some ways to keep us safe today because of the heroes that he's created in his own book, We've got the creator of Okemus, TJ Sterling, joining us today. Thank Woo! you so much. Hey, what's up, everybody? How you doing? Man, great to be here. Fantastic show, to see man. everyone. Thank you so much. Happy to be on. Welcome to the show. Uh, we're going we're gonna to chat with TJ about a few things. We've got Okemus to talk about. We've got his successful Kickstarter to talk about and a whole bunch of other things. Really excited to do this. I want to let you guys know before we dive into this interview, where you can find us on the internet. Of course, we're the Comics Pals. You type that in anywhere, we'll come up. Uh, hopefully, Google will show you us first. We've worked hard to make that happen. <laughs> Otherwise, you can hit us on social media at the Comics Pals. You can write in at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you very much. That means that you can see TJ's very cool background of the Okemus characters. Make sure that you guys are hitting that like button, subscribing to our channel, drop us a comment, share this video with your friends. And hit the notification bell so you're made aware of when we drop new content. All of those things are free to do, and they help us out a lot more than they cost you. Last but certainly not least, join our Discord server. We've got the link in the description. You guys are going to want to come hang out with us. We're always having really fun conversations. If you care about Chainsaw Man, join our Discord because that's (laughs) all anyone ever seems to want to talk about these days. So come hang out with us. Allegedly. Allegedly, it's great. Listen, the Discord doesn't lie. Sure. Let's talk about something else that's great. Let's talk about Okemus. Let's talk with TJ Sterling. Man, it's been a while since we've connected. How's it going for you? It's been going great, guys. And yeah, I think the last time we all had a chance to talk was Philadelphia Comic-Con in uh, downtown Philly last year. So it's been a full year since I've seen you guys. And, you know, lots happened since then. It's been a full year and an even fuller year because of everything we've been going through the because lockdown. 2020. <laughs> I don't think I've seen you in 20 years. Right? Yeah, I was it, that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, like you said that that was last year. I was like, holy shit, was that only last summer? <laughs> right? Bro, I mean, Sean's got this quarantine beard thing going on. <laughs> and my, maintaining my quarantine beard. Like, it's just, it's, uh, it's a lot, expert. man. It's I shaved mine for my Halloween costume and I just feel naked. I miss it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could never be barefaced again, I don't think. Um, the girlfriend doesn't want it. But, uh, funny story TJ and I had set up an interview at the Philly Con and we're doing it. It's going well. You know, we're vibing. 
And then I get word from the people behind the cameras. Hey, cameras not working. Okay. Change the battery, you know, whatever. Mm. Nope. No go. All right. Switch cameras. Cameras not working. Two cameras, batteries, nothing working. It was our last interview of the day. And we got halfway through the interview and we just couldn't, we couldn't get it done. We didn't even get to put it out. So that's fine. This will be the official interview. And if I ask you all the same questions, don't be offended. No, not a problem. <laughs> the, the haunted spirit of that camera will be all over this interview. So I can't wait to see what breaks. <laughs> <laughs> and it is Halloween too. So, yep. Oh, God. Sure. So, just to lay the foundation of what Okimus is, why don't you tell the people listening what this book kind of is about? Absolutely. I'd love to. So, Okimus is a sci-fi martial art action story about a young guy that's got a latent superhuman ability that could potentially save the human race. And he's being pursued by these four warriors, these characters here in my background, um, the hunters. They've actually traveled from the future to uh, try to steal this uh, latent superhuman ability for their own evil purposes. So lots of drama, action, suspense, all kinds of weird, crazy stuff going on. And uh, it's a fun book. If you like action, if you like Sentai, if you like 90s japanese anime and you know manga i mean like and and just time travel this is the type of book for you that was very good <laughs> that was that pitch was pitch. you got that elevator mark. pitch down he <laughs> didn't even blink i've done a take few a breath. Of these here and there <laughs> so that was extremely accurate and right now i think there's there's kind of a revival of interest in you know, Sentai stuff. We've got, we're going to be talking later today about the Power Rangers announcement um, and stuff like that. And so when I, when I saw you, I saw that um, there was a lot of interest at your table. There was a, a lot of people coming up, wanting to see your stuff. Um, and you had already sold out of a lot of different prints and things. I remember I wanted a print. I was lucky enough to be able to get one, but it was very limited. And uh, there were a lot that were sold out. So for you, when you go to these cons, what's the interest level like and what what most immediately grabs people about your work? Um, yeah, man, I, I think I think you were you grabbed like one of the last prints or something like that. Yeah. Or, you know, it was I think <clears throat> when people see, you know, someone like me that is, you know, uh, in the indie space doing a Sentai book, it's it's pretty like it, it's non-existent. Actually, I think I'm the only individual that, in this particular space that's doing the Sentai genre. That, that's not, not you know one of the big companies or doing something that people have seen before. And I think people, mm. are, you know, gravitate towards the characters, gravitate towards the art. And then when they read the story, like, wait a minute, this is completely something that I thought it wasn't. You know, like I think they were already thinking, hey, there's a team here. That means they got to be good guys. But in fact, they're not good guys at all. They're actually the villains of the story. So certain things kind of throw people and that just makes them more interested in what we're putting down and what we're, um, you know, creating with these these books and these stories. So just uh, fortunate to be around and, and long enough to where people are like, oh, hey, when's the next one coming out? What's going to happen? I can't wait to hear what's going to happen and or see what happens or read about it. And that just makes you feel really good and just like we're going in the right direction kind of. That's what struck me most immediately is that you have carved out a niche for yourself. Um, and I think I, I'm going to ask you later about how to 
be an indie creator and craft something that keeps people coming back and wanting more. And I think without even asking you, I would imagine one of your answers would be do something that no one else is doing. And you did that. And so when I read the book, I was like, just like you said, expecting, okay, these are cool looking characters, very visually dynamic. I expect to see some cool heroic action. And it's like, no, there's a huge twist. It's not what you expect. And that added another layer that took it from this book looks cool to this is a story I care about. This is a story that I want to know more about. And I was very impressed by that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think Okemos itself is about self, self-discovery. self I mean, and just for people who are curious, you know, Okemos isn't the name of a character. It's actually the name of a place. And uh, it's a mythical city complex where all the characters are created. So it's almost like, you know, Mount Olympus, if you think about it. It's this place that no one's really ever been to, but all these characters are running beneath it and, you know, existing in a space like, okay, well, what is this, you know, entity that's created me, you know? And uh, again, it, we, we try to just flip every stereotype every you know shift every paradigm we can to make it as unique and just you know again unexpected so you you came up with this story but the first few issues you didn't you didn't write them you had a you had a partner uh eugene uh eugene argent um was my co-writer so i i try to preface it like this because I didn't, I never understood comic book scripting to a point like of creating an issue. Like all I knew how to do was write a story in terms of like novel form. So I wrote all of those books in like a, you know, paragraphs and story arcs and plot points. I wrote all that stuff. And then I would give it to Eugene who would do his writing thing. And then also say, Hey, what do you think if we added like, you know, this particular type of thing to your story, that would make it really, really cool. So, um, working with a co-writer to me in the beginning was very, very helpful. Just figure out and understand how comic book writing is done okay okay and so that that collaborative process was that because because you did come up with a story was it was it fun to allow someone else to kind of play in your in your sandbox a little bit and and add their own spice uh was that something that you enjoyed Absolutely. I mean, I just, I appreciate uh, genuine collaboration, man. Like I just love working with, you know, colorists and writers and just different folks who, you know, love comics because again, they always bring something new to the table. And again, like, uh, you know, Eugene came up one of the, the really cool ma- names for one of these monsters. Like, oh, that's a great name. I couldn't even thought of that myself. Like, I mean, just there's certain things that you know, another person will bring to your brand. Um, but again, they just have to love, you know, your idea. And I think that's the biggest thing that people struggle with is that they want to collaborate with other folks. But when they do that, they just kind of prematurely do it. Like you have to kind of create a relationship with people like you guys are all buddies. So it's like, you know, you guys do these shows and, you know, you have a rapport and you like hanging out together. And that makes the collaborative process that much better when you can actually be friends and know these people that you're working with. It's pretty generous, I think, when you're talking about us. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sean yeah, and I are friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pete and I like each other, the, and the, and then the other guys aren't even here. They they don't even care to show up. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to Okemos, this is a very different and unique idea, and. I guess I'm not I'm not asking you how you came up with it, but what was sort of the inspiration? What did you want to say with this book? Absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, I think that um, 
I think everyone, when they are creating a story, should do exactly what they want. I mean, if you have an idea about something, just bring it to fruition, do it. And uh, But you also have to kind of look at the market. If you're in love with you know, uh, ancient Egypt and you want to do stories about characters from there, um, by all means, have at it, have a great time. But I think it also kind of behooves you to take a look at the market because at the moment, in the black indie comic space, there's tons of people doing ancient Egyptian-inspired stuff. Now, again, I think it's cool, but if you got five or six books or more that are doing it, it might not be as unique if you jump into the pool and, you know, we're all doing the same thing type of thing. So it's like create in the space that, you know, is genuine to yourself, but, you know, just double check things. You know, I think one of my friends is like a huge Google person. Like he Googles everything, whether there's a logo or a name or a person attached to an idea that he may even think of, like he lives on Google and just is a super research head before he even starts a project. So again, like that, those types of things, your best friend, make sure that there is nothing out there even similar. And, uh, but, but it's weird though. Cause I mean, a buddy of mine created a really cool indie book called stealth and then image came out of nowhere and created an, an almost exactly similar book, same looking characters, same looking text. Like it was just this weird thing that kind of happened. So it's like, you just never know. You think you're doing something creative, but then at the same time, something weird that's derivative could come along. You just, you just don't know sometimes. So with yeah, the, oh, I'm go sorry, ahead, go ahead, John. Oh, I was gonna ask. So with Okamis, what were some of the like? What were some of the things that you looked at when you were in that research phase? When you were kind of like getting the idea together, like were you real big into Sentai and Kung Fu and stuff when you were growing up, or like where this where this idea come from? Oh, I love that question because yeah, I mean, I'm a I grew up absolutely loving uh, manga, anime. Uh, Japanese anime in the early 90s was something that kind of hit like a wave here in uh, the States. And I was just incredibly like blown away by, man, I fucking love this stuff. It's amazing. And um, at the same time, I'm watching, you know, Kamen Rider and Ultraman and Beetleborgs and uh, VR Troopers. And like, I just love that entire um, genre. Um, and, you know, as I dig deeper, I'm like, man, there's this entire subculture in japan of just sentai stuff and it's it just expands even more than just power rangers so many other stories that came before that um that were incredibly dynamic you know uh, adult subjects that were kind of you know uh, nestled in really some cool stuff so i mean that the whole 90s decade you know the edginess of 90s comics um you know hulk and spawn and you know cool spider-man by mcfarland like there's so many great things that inspired oakmas at the time that i just absolutely loved so i think for me it was just one of those things that i knew i wanted to make a love letter to the 90s but also do something really really cool that i felt was dynamic uh storytelling wise and just visually very captivating that absolutely comes across that that love for the for the medium comes across and Kale um, is actually a massive fan of, you know, Sentai stuff. And I know that he watches a lot of that. So can you, Kale, see some of the inspiration and some of that stuff in this work? I, you know, I wasn't able to get to the, uh, the issues, but even in just like the costumes in, in the background, you know, that I can see, like it's, since you said it's, your you know one of your main influences like it's right there like it's you know and, and i mean that you know in a good way like you're not uh you know uh uh parodying it you know uh, but it looks great thank you man i really appreciate that yeah i uh 
absolutely feel um, appreciative of that because, I mean, I went as far as I could to try to make the uh, designs more inspired instead of derivative. I mean, mm -hmm. I think for me, um, you know, I always liked the Sentai characters and I mean, just there were certain parts, cer certain shows to me that made a little bit more sense. Like, let's say VR Troopers to me made a lot of sense in terms of like, okay, they have, you know, the ability to access this VR realm and in this VR realm, they're, they're, you know, they're these incredibly powerful superheroes. They wouldn't be able to do the same thing in the real world. But I think just certain things, you know, you have to make sense um, from a standpoint of, um, how do I say this? It's, uh, it's a standpoint where, you know, uh, things are, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It escapes me. I apologize. But all the armor the the Okamis characters wear is um, it's it's tactical, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Like the world they come from, mm. they you know like the the world's completely polluted, so they have these masks. In the, well, these their masks are um, something that basically uh, filters out all of like the deadly toxins. So it's like you think about wearing a mask now in this time period in 2020, yeah, because there's COVID out there. I mean, it's very similar in their world that there's diseases, there's the air's not breathable. So they are in effect like these, you know, uh, warriors that are walking around in suits that keep them alive, you know? And I think uh, it's just a testament to like making sure that the character, the armors are something that is, based in real world stuff versus just like, Oh, have, having a cool suit that, that, you know, you can fight with, like, it's just more than that, at least for Okamas. Well, and it, it adds to that extra layer of authenticity. Uh, like, you know, one of my favorite things is when you see, you know, when a, a character gets hit and the suit, uh, it doesn't like, you know, Often when, when a character gets hit real hard, they come out of the suit, you know, they, they demorph or, or, detransform or whatever but there's sometimes when they get hit and like the the helmet shatters like on their eye or something or you'll see like tears in the suit and in a good suit you'll see like the the circuitry and like the broken glass and like the uh you know the the charred like uh you know uh flesh behind the visor and it, it right. adds that layer of um uh believability and authenticity that uh makes it so much deeper that's right yeah it, it's funny that uh <clears throat> it's funny that you said that kale I'm, I'm looking at uh the third issue right now and it's like literally the the fight between kale and the hunters and like all the masks are all shattered and and beaten up and stuff and it's totally that vibe for sure rad thank you yeah and and so that and again that level of authenticity that attention to detail is something that does separate this book out and one of the reasons why i enjoy it so much you mentioned how right now in black in, in black indie space there's like five or six ancient egypt books you know or what have you and the thing about this book is that if i want to read more of okamus i can't say all right let me go to the store and buy this other book you know i have to wait for you to put the next book out so when the mm -hmm. Kickstarter comes around, sorry. Or <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I'm sitting here and I have um, issues zero through three, right? In like in my personal possession, and I I read through three, and I'm like, damn, I, I want to like I want more. And then I I went, oh, the fourth one was in. You, you know, you you were gracious enough to uh, let us read that, and I'm like, yeah. oh, awesome! I I get to read the fourth issue. Okay, cool. So then I read that, and then it ended, and I'm like. 
okay, but now I want the visit issue. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't get it anywhere else. And so, you know, if you're writing a story about a kid who gets bit by a, you know, some kind of animal and now he's, you know, rat man or whatever. All right, cool. But I could go read Spider-Man, you know, Um, just carving out that niche is so important, Um, especially with badass characters. Yeah, I definitely feel like you just have to um, continue to keep it to a point where um, you are making a story that is just just different, man. I, I think that every issue I try to, again, just what's the cliffhanger? What's the like, oh shit moment? That's like, I guess how I put it, like, what's the oh shit moment in this book yeah. that kind of like puts people like, oh, hey, that's that's just really different, man. And I like that. And, you know, and, and you know, I've been grateful enough to continue to hook people into, you know, getting to the next issue so they can see what's happening. I'm working a much faster. Um, there's a whole bunch more titles that I'm writing and co-writing and working on behind the scenes. So like within the next couple of years, you're going to see like an influx of stuff from Ray comics, like on various different genres, more Okamus books, um, which I can't wait to talk about as well. You know, as time goes on. Speaking of that, actually we had uh, Greg Anderson, Elise on the show. Uh, we interviewed him of, uh, a couple months ago, and he mentioned that you guys might actually be collaborating on something, which is really exciting for me. Oh yeah! <laughs> so um, get ready for that fun story. That book, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's something. It's gonna be something dirty. It's gonna be something funny, uh, ridiculous. I mean, Greg and I together as friends are pretty risque. Um, we have lots of weird sex jokes. We're just really strange friends and, and, and in the best way possible. So our writing um, for this new book that we're coming out with is, is literally a sci-fi um, sex comedy, um, really weird buddy cop type genre that we're kind of <laughs> playing with. And it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like everything about it is ridiculous. It's not for kids. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and shit. Um, Sign me up. it's just so, so much fun, man, working with different people because, you know, Greg's uh, preference in terms of like the art that he likes is much different than my preference. So we found like an artist that's kind of like right in the middle between like what I like and what he likes. And even the writing itself, there's me in there, there's him in there, there's a splice of both of us together. And we're building like a new universe within both of our companies, which is really, really fun. And um, I'm doing something very similar with. Um, Newton Lillevoix of Crescent City Monsters, who was a good friend of mine and also somebody I admire uh, in the industry quite a bit. Um, who else? Uh, I'm working on two other books as well. Uh, I've got a um, a space opera drama um, with that's a YA title with young kids who are pilots. Um, me and my brother are working on that. My brother's a music producer engineer by trade, so we're actually kind of splicing in a musical component and you know soundtracks and kind of awesome. doing an ode to like. 80s and 90s 8-bit video game so like we're just doing some cool stuff man and i'm just super checking excited a lot of boxes to share for me on that guys. last one <laughs> what'd you say <laughs> said you're checking a lot of boxes for me on that last one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it, you know it's it's pretty easy to tell what what space i grew up in it's you know hard to <laughs> hard to deny and and that's that's perfect because i wanted to talk to you about sort of your origin so Obviously, you've come a long way and you've got all these projects coming up and that's beautiful, but that that starts somewhere. And as a as a black person, are are you are you more than that or like are you are you just black? Are you just African-American? 
like I'm a, the black American. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking pretty American. light right now. It's hard to tell. I've got like a middle Eastern thing going on <laughs> 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 a Dominican thing with what they tell me here in New York, but Word. yeah, I mean, like I said, we all come in all shades, all experiences, which is kind of, you know, amazing in, in itself. But yeah, I, um, you know, I, I just think that, you know, when you're telling stories that are cool, um, and, and you know, you are infusing diversity, uh, not for a preachy, um, not for preachy, you know, means, or, you know, my goal isn't to be preachy. It's more or less just, this is the world that I see around me. I mean, one of the characters in my book, um, Massar, the guy in purple, which you kind of see in the top left, um, maybe a little bit more of him right there, that guy in the corner, Massar, he's actually based on one of my best friends, uh, Jim Lee, who I grew up with in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, who's, you know, six, four Asian guy, you know, he, shot put in discus he's like you know he looked like you know a, a greek god he was humongous but good friend of mine like i said I, I try to put in diversity that is authentic to me and the people that i know and make it look like the people i grew up with and that's just how it is it's not forced and i think that a lot of bigger companies get in trouble when they are forcing diversity because mm. it's not they're just trying to check a box and for me we're just it's an authentic story that is you know, education on lots of levels, but it's also very entertaining. So, I mean, if you are going to get the book, it's like you're not being hit over the head with something. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and that's the, that's what happens when you have creators enter the space who are from these backgrounds that can tell their stories in an authentic way. You know, if you're, if you lived it, it's not something you need to preach. It's just what it is. Like, you know, you grow, right. grow up around various kinds of people. They're going to find their way into your book. It just makes sense. Um, growing up, was, was it cool for you to be, you know, a nerd into the games, into the, you know, into the Sentai comics, if you were, if you were reading at the time? Like, I know that sometimes it can be difficult for us when we were growing up. Maybe it's different now for kids, but when we were growing up to express those things and not be bullied and not be, you know, shamed because of different things that other people around us might be into. Was that all right for you? Were you able to express yourself? Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I think that everything except X-Men was cool at the time. I mean, I think everyone <laughs> talked about it. All the cool kids talked about X-Men, but every, everything else, whether it was like Mega Man or anime or certain types of games it's like oh that's nerdy but like you know when x-men was on saturday morning cartoons like everybody loved it and i think that was one of those things that me and my buddies and, and people who were cool at school as i wasn't one of them um, <laughs> was uh you know like oh Psy psylocke wouldn't win against this character or wolverine would definitely beat this character and then like there's all these debates and discussions about what x-men characters were more powerful and you know people would remember oh there are seven there are omega level power and they, they think about these things and it would think you think it would be nerdy or perceived as nerdy but ultimately it was more accepted when, when it comes to certain things but the nerds were still billed as those kids that liked video games and you know superheroes and comics and stuff like that and to me i i, I always loved it man like i never really even cared what people considered to be nerdy or whatever and um or because i mean all my buddies most of my buddies were like people who like myself like these genres but then the cool kids were like the jocks the the, the, uh, the football players the basketball players and and i was the kid that liked comics and martial arts and you know so many 
And it was just, was always like, you know, you know, okay, they're the cool kids, fine. But at the same time, like I always loved being in that space because I was never a basketball player. I was never a football player. I just liked, you know, unique stories. Because to me, it's like, those are, I, I felt like those were the people who were always going to be the best off. And, you know, you see guys like, that are billionaires that were nerds. I mean, look at Robert Kirkman. He was probably a nerd in school, but he's a multimillionaire in comics. Yeah. And it, it just, you know, who, who knew that the, that could happen? Like now we're the cool kids because we're the ones making all the damn money. <laughs> yeah. It's like, where's the, uh, doing where's, all the, the captain, stuff. where's the captain of his high school football team right now? <laughs> probably not making that walking dead money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> did you, did you grow up reading comics? Yeah, man. I started growing. I mean, I started reading comics in like the late eighties and my first book I think was like a Spider-Man book or like, a. and then the first book that blew my mind was X-Men number one by Jim Lee. I remember, I, re I still remember the day I bought it. That's how crazy that was like 91, I think 92, maybe like, yeah. Wow. Tells a little bit about how long I've been buying comics, but yeah, I love <laughs> comics, man. And Swamp Thing was probably my favorite character out of everybody. If I'm being honest, like yo, where's him and Marco Batman, right one now? My two favorites. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't know anything about Swamp Thing. That's weird. <laughs> That's a joke. one of one of our other uh, co-hosts is is the biggest Swamp Thing fan I think in the swamp. Like he is just <laughs> obsessed. He is the Swamp Thing. He is the Swamp. He is Alec Holland. I think I think he actually has the entire run now. Like I think I think he yeah. completed his like he has every appearance of Swamp Thing oh, in man. his collection now. <laughs> We just did a, a book club on um, on Swamp Thing by uh, Neil Gaiman. Uh, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry, Alan Moore. The other one, Alan Moore. And, yeah. uh, and um, it, it's it's incredible how good that was. Just as an aside, like that was an incredible story. He, yeah, um, he made he made Swamp Thing fans out of us. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the way he wrote the character in those books, because I mean, I started out as a Swamp Thing fan from watching that, like. 93 animated short that had all the toys connected to it yeah and i was like oh this character seems really cool so i mean i got into the comic books and then i had discovered the alan moore run and i was like he wrote the character very you know spiritual and introspective and and you know it was this individual it just like that that it flux between space and time you know he he beat batman it's like no character at that moment in time could beat batman i mean what's more cool than uh, like having the power to beat the one of the most powerful heroes ever and uh i don't know his story was always powerful made to me and even even with i had the chance of meeting um the guy who recently did the, the most recent swamp thing run um why am i I'm spacing on his name and i apologize but he did the uh the the rot world uh swamp thing series that had a cross between animal man during the new 52 charles Sewell. Uh, um, yeah charles Sewell. jeff lemire yeah mm-hmm um, I, think, I, think, I think he was doing, I think Jeff Lemire was doing Animal Man at the time. Jeff Lemire was yeah, doing, he was Animal, doing Man. Animal Man. So then Charles. But there was Sewell, another, yeah. yeah, he was doing the writing, but there's another artist um, that oh, I'm just missing Steve, the name on. Steve Pugh? Scott Snyder, Yannick Paquette? Yannick no, Paquette, uh, yeah. Yeah, Yannick Paquette. I had a chance to meet him at Dragon Con and just like, I loved, absolutely loved his rendition of Swamp Thing. I thought it was incredible I mean, from an artistic standpoint. And He's uh, so good. To me, yeah. there's, 
he's the nicest guy in the world, man. And he's very like, Oh, well, you know, you like comics too. Can I take a look at your stuff? And you know, like, Oh, I'd love to see more of what you're going to do with your story. Like he's just an awesome guy and, and such a really cool creator and inspiring too. So it's like, it's funny when you love a book, but then you meet a creator and you know, like, man, it, they, they, this is why I like this book so much. The creators behind it were really awesome. So. Yeah. That's one of the the coolest things about, in this industry and uh, doing what we do on this side, getting to meet so many of you and, you know, uh, 99% of the time just being like, wow, the, the creation matches the person. Like That's it's right. good to like something. And then the person behind the work is also someone you can like. Um, it, it's, it's one of the beautiful things about, about comics. So I would, I would just like to call out real quick. We've had the privilege of uh, chatting with Yannick a couple times. So head over to the YouTube channel. We've got like three or four interviews with him that are all like 30 to 40 minutes. Cause he, oh, wow. That's incredible. been very generous with his time with us. So go yeah. check that out. That's amazing. I definitely will guys. That's really cool. Thank yeah. You. you specifically, but the audience as uh, well. The listeners you, guys yes. go check <laughs> you don't have to go check out anything. TJ. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm curious. Cause it's like, when you are at a con and you finally, you know, meet the guy, like meet one of the guys or gals that are drawing a book or creating a book that you like, you want to spend some time talking with, them, but you also don't want to take them away from selling. So it's like, I didn't get a chance, a lot of time to talk with them. So that interview is perfect. I mean, again, people, if you like Swamp Thing and you want to see some, you know, see, hear what a master has to say about his cre time creating Swamp Thing, definitely jump on that. And I know I will for sure. Thank you. What a ringing endorsement. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> How did you determine that you wanted to tell stories in this space? I mean, I've always kind of told stories, man. I think for me, like the most um, exciting kind of rewarding thing was always, um, you know, as a kid, just writing, you know, creating like fun, little cool stories. Like I have like a notebook, like a, literally a notebook that I have for school that I'd be writing stories and doodling in, like clearly not doing any homework at all. Um, <laughs> but um, in itself, really, really just enjoying um, where a story could take me, where, you know, it, it was like escapism the most positive way. Like I was never into like, I don't know, like I think some people get into escapism in some negative ways, whether it's drugs or alcohol, I mean, or weird stuff. That's never been my thing. Like it's always characters, stories, games, things like that are always like a good way to transport me to another world. And um, stories were always a way to do it for me. So like I always was writing something or always drawing something and thinking of a narrative behind the creations. That's awesome. Um, and I, I think I think a lot of us come from that same space. Like, you know, you 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 grow up and like maybe there's some trouble in your life or, you know, some trouble, you know, in the home or whatever. And it's like, hey, I just pick up this comic book and I'm transported into another world and I ain't got to think about any of that, you know? Right. Um, and so it's beautiful for you to be able to pay that forward in a way by telling your stories uh, with your own creations. And one of the things that's so cool about Okamis is that because of how visually interesting it is, um, it also appeals to young people. And you can offer young people that's that same kind of experience. Like, hey, here's this really cool story with awesome artwork in it. And, you know, at its core, like beyond all of the cool fight scenes and the explosions and all of that is actually a story about a young person um, discovering themselves. And that's, that's right. something that anyone can relate to. Yeah. I mean, the whole narrative of uh, a young person 
having something special within inside them that they don't even realize it's like undiscovered potential. And the fact that, you know, sometimes there are individuals that, that, you know, are not so supportive of that, whether it's a family member, whether it's a teacher, I mean, whether it's, um, I mean, I've just heard stories of people like, yeah, my teacher didn't really push me or, you know, gave me this whole, Oh, you can't do that. Or that's not, you know, a lucrative thing. I mean, I had a buddy of mine from the Philippines who was an incredibly talented natural artist, but his parents told him that, you know, art will never make you any money. So he got into, you know, medical field and he was completely miserable. And it's like, there's certain things that will try to stop you from doing the things that you really want to do your passion about as a kid. So it's like my, you know, way of kind of like addressing that, you know, um, the narrative behind that is just to tell a different narrative that, Hey, you know, what you have inside you is special and, 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 you know, you, you do need to entertain it and maybe embrace it. And in Kale's case, inside this comic book, the main character, you know, he, his, the manifestation of his power is very literal and it's very, you know, like, okay, like he, uh, say, I start, I'm going to, I'm going to start ruining stuff. So you got to read <laughs> you got to check it out. <laughs> you know, it's funny yeah. that the Kale in this story obviously shares a name with our Kale here. That's right. And the cool uh, they're name, man. <laughs> <laughs> they, <made> it. <laughs> they have something in common uh uh the the kale in the story and this kale have something a lot in common i don't want to spoil anything but uh when this kale gets angry something very similar happens to him in fact we experienced it last week <laughs> Please do very, tell. He's very uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know. Not look at him. <laughs> I like it. I like the fact that we haven't said what happens I, in the book, and I, so Kale has no idea what I'm talking about. I pout yeah. and then apologize and away from an audience. I don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> is that is that what you mean? You you turn into a monster, Kale. What do you mean? Wow. A big '90s style monster what? <laughs> with very sharp teeth. How could you say that about me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you guys are my best friends. <laughs> before before we deviate just a little bit, I wanted to show off, if it's okay with you, a little bit right more ahead. of the art from the book um, because it is it is incredible. Just like look at this cover, right? Like this is so cool. Um, I love that. I one. love the the touch. He's got the Run DMC shirt on. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's right. Um, and if I could open this real quick, um, I, I don't want to oh spoil anything, so I'm trying to be very careful. Um, I just <laughs> want to show cool action shots for you guys, though, because I know that um, you know you guys are going to want to see this stuff. Uh, let's see, what's a really cool page? I've been obsessed with this page. Um, I just think it looks really cool. Oh, thank just, you. You gotta love. I had a lot of fun page, drawing man. that. <laughs> I, I believe yeah, it. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there's so many things like this in the book where it's just like visually arresting, like it, it captivates and that's the best thing you can say about a medium that is so driven by the way it looks is that you can't turn away from the page. You want to keep looking, you want to turn it, you want to see what happens next because every page is building upon itself in terms of coolness, in terms of storytelling. And um, yeah, just like if you have the opportunity to pick it up, please do. Um, I, I want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find the book um, before we shift gears. Absolutely. Yeah, it's super easy to find the comics. I mean, uh, raycomics.com, R-A-E comics.com. We've got um, issue zero all the way to four. So it's five books consecutively that you can get into the story. We've got T-shirts. 
got toys, um, we've got art prints and a whole lot more. So I'd love for you guys to check it out and uh, you won't be disappointed. I can, I can guarantee you. And as can I, uh, it's, it's very awesome. I feel lucky to have these issues uh, in physical. So if you can pick them up, you're going to want to do that. Um, it's, it's worth your time. And the cool thing is that if you are somebody who doesn't like, you know, long drawn out stories, like maybe you don't want to get into something like, let's say the walking dead, because it's like 150 issues. Well, this is actually not that long at all. You can get the whole thing for not anywhere close to the same amount of money that it would cost you to buy into something, some longer Epic. So, um, definitely worth your time and your investment. I would say. Thank you so much. Brad. Absolutely. Now you have, I, I mean, we met at a comic con, so you, a part of your business is going and selling your books essentially hand to hand. Um, and that's yes. something that you do very effectively. You know, you, you gave a great elevator pitch before, um, <laughs> clearly as you put as much work into the business of selling your work as you do creating the work. And yeah. that's something that is difficult. I think for, um, people jumping into the industry to kind of understand is that, you know, it, unfortunately or fortunately, it's not as simple as just, you know, being good at this. You have to, there is another element you have to become business savvy and things like that, whether it's in person selling your book to potential fans or doing Kickstarter. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned over the years of of you doing this? And if you could pass on any information, we have people that listen to the show who do want to create comics. What are some of the things you tell um, younger people or people trying to break into the industry about how to succeed? Oh man, uh, Sean's got these amazing questions today. What the heck? And, uh, well, you all do, but um, you're hitting me with some hard ones, man. So, uh, how do I say this? So, uh, you know, pace it out, pace yourself. That's the first thing because for me, my story has always been kind of interesting. I mean, I've loved comics forever. I've been collecting comics forever, but I've also been going to conventions for over 15 years. Um, I started going to cons in 2005 with uh, san diego comic-con when you could like buy a ticket right at the at the show the same day and and you know there was no line there was no i mean that was the space back then it was much different and even artist alley was not marginalized it was not like shrunk and put to the very very back of the show which they have now at san diego it was right in the middle and and you know you could walk up and talk to creators and get to know them you know and and i tell everyone spend the time getting to know the people working in the actual big comic industry. It's good to have friends in the indie comic space, but get to know the big guys too. get to know, you know, the Brian Stelfreezes and the Adam Hughes and, and, you know, the Mark Brooks and the Carrie Ronda Randolph's like, look at, you know, get to know these people at cons because they've been doing it very, very long and, um, you know, support their work and just again, start building relationships with them. Cause the, once you start building relationships that sets you up for, long-term success on various different levels. Um, my relationships with those people in the big companies allowed me to, you know, intern at Marvel and allowed me to do some, you know, stuff for DC and do some stuff for Aspen Comics. I mean, that's just getting to know people. That's all it is because it's such a small industry. And I would say that most of the people in the industry are actually really, really cool. So it, it behooves you to get to know these people because the, what you can learn from them just being their friend and being in their space and understanding and there's a constant well of inspiration that you can, you know, take from or pull from, if you will. And then uh, when you want to start your own comic, you got to do your research. 
I mean, again, my internship at Marvel really helped a lot because I was understanding, I was in the production department in the bullpen. So I was learning how to put comics together, soup to nuts, like whether, you know, art files would come in from like John Romita or something, we'd, you know, you know, kind of tighten them up in terms of like some of the inking and then, you know, getting them ready for, for print, like sizing wise. And these are the types of things that were very, very helpful to understand the mechanics of putting a comic book together. And um, from that point, you know, it, it, it took a while to write a story out, build it, and then be satisfied with what I had story-wise. And then also being satisfied with the art that I put out was another challenge because it took me a while to kind of like get confident enough to be like, oh, hey, I want to sell my work. But, you know, I had went to art school for years. I was a Bachelor of Fine Arts major in illustration. So I, I was constantly chip you know just chopping away at the tree and it just took a good while before i was really ready to 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 start playing in the professional space but um yeah just pace yourself man it's it's a journey uh you want to put out good material and and i think so many people are just rushing to put out something that it, it this material can be sacrificed a little bit and you just something you don't want to do yeah i think i think that's great advice um a lot of people fall into the trap of like all right, I'm just going to put something out and it's good to have something out, but it's good for it to be quality. Something that people remember for good reasons, not you yeah. know, negative ones. Um, when it comes to Kickstarter, you have obviously been successful. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, it was really cool to see. I felt like I saw your name everywhere. All of a sudden I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, what, what do you feel Beyond the fact that your book is quality, beyond the fact that you can present something that looks good, is good, what do you think drew people into the Kickstarter on your end, the work that you put into it, um, that made it such a success? Yeah, man, that's a great question. I mean, I, I would say that, uh, you know, the majority of the people that supported me were people who I have interfaced with at cons before. I mean cons not being around and that being a large part chunk of like my fan base and my business is in-person interaction like man i haven't seen tj in a while i don't know what type of new stuff he's got let me just jump on this kickstarter and support big and, and i did some really cool exclusive stuff that you could only get through the campaign which made it a lot more fun for people to want to you know donate and um yeah man so like uh, it, it was a culmination of things but definitely i would say that the support came from that that core group that I met in person that, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful for those guys because they've been day one supporters, you know? And that's, that's so pivotal in this industry because you said earlier, it is a small industry um, from the creator end, but I, I think also from the fan end to a degree in the sense that you see a lot of the same people I would imagine at, at different yeah. conventions um, and just, you know, cultivating those relationships is, is so critical. Um, you spoke of the lack of cons these days, and that is something that, you know, I mean, it's hurting all of us. It's, it's, a, it's unfortunate. Um, but as a creator, there's potentially a silver lining for you in the sense that you get to kind of focus more on the craft. Would you say that that's been true for you? Yeah, man. I mean, I, I've spent so much time working inside on these stories, on more stuff. I'm, I've got friends that again that are that are more available than they've ever been. So it's like, oh, hey, let's work on something, let's do it. And it's been just like this constant, just foot on the gas, go as fast as you can to create as much as you can before we get busy again. Because, I mean, some of my buddies are they're in they're in doing cons like twelve months out of the year. I only do about six months of cons a year, and that's a lot of work 
by itself. But when you do, some folks are doing it all the time and they don't have it at all, you know, you see people stepping up their online presence. They're doing yeah. more Facebook ads. They're on more podcasts. Like they're they're everywhere they can virtually to try to recapture some of that business. I mean, I personally think there's nothing better than being at a convention um, and meeting people one on one because those relationships are like really true. They're like they're lasting. And I'll give you an example. Like one of my original supporters from 2015, who I still talk to, has become a really good friend of mine. Let's say I got brought to San Diego for a con in 2018 um, for for SDCC, and it was last minute. I had no place to stay. All the hotels are booked, but then like a fan's like, "Oh, hey, come sleep on my couch or come stay at my." And, and these are types of things that when you really you can't get that same relationship virtually, you know, like it has to be one on one to build those real relationships. So I think virtual is good for now, but you know, the in person cons have to come back at some point in time. That's awesome. And it's cool that, you know, when we do eventually, hopefully get back to that place, you'll have so much more to share. You know, you'll have so many more books and things to to showcase for those people who are your long term fans, but also people who've never known your work before. Correct. So. I wanted to ask you about the things that you like, what what books do you like to read? What video games do you get into? Like what? drives your your escapism or your enjoyment of of creativity outside of your own work man i've been uh so insanely busy the last like year with like creating new content that i have been disconnected from some of like reading some of the stories i've been diving more into indie stuff as of late but for but seriously like i have not played any video games that are not old like i think i was playing mega man the other day uh, <laughs> I think I was playing an, an old um, Ninja Turtle, uh, the old Ninja Turtles game that the arcade one. Oh yeah, me, which uh, I absolutely love. Turtles in Time, uh, right? That Turtles one? in Time. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, and uh, what else? Um, I I just picked up the new Mortal Kombat actually. So the new Mortal Kombat is about nice. the most recent game that I've been actually playing, and you know, excited every time they they put a new character in, whether it's the Terminator or Spawn, or like. Fucking Rambo incredible. now for some reason, Dude, bro. <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> the ne- who are they going to put next? Like seriously, who are they going to put next? Someone uh, from Okemos. That'd be incredible, man. But it's like <laughs> my days are spent like talking to video game companies and talking to you know other creators and inter- you know doing interviews and then you know writing and drawing. Like uh, the business is become is growing so fast that it encompasses all of my time now. And uh, I haven't been able, so I've been escaping into my own world. Like, how do I make this (laughs) as rich as possible? But I also want to get better as a writer too, because, you know, I've got people like Alan Moore or Ta-Nehisi Coates that are like up here to me. And like, I'm nowhere near that in terms of writing. I mean, my style is very like simplistic, very like less is more. And and I want to be more suggestive, but this, I want to get better because I want you guys to really love the material, you know? Yeah. And, and, it's funny because I you never hear that you never hear someone say like I'm I'm also trying to improve my work, um, so that's that's very that's very cool and I, I think um, you're 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 very much on your way, my brother. And um, thank you, appreciate. Yeah, that, we, we we love what you're doing, and um, you know I I can't wait to see more. Um, before we let you go, uh, I did have <laughs> I did have to ask first of all, what Mega Man game were you playing? Because I'm obsessed with Mega Man. Um, Mega Man X, bro. 
Yes. Oh my God. Fucking love that game. Mega Man X. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, see, Mega Man X2 was, was eh, because like the whole creative team changed and they tried to go a cheaper route. And then they brought the, then they figured out, like, oh, hey, we need to just bring the same creative team back. So they did that with number three and they yeah. kind of redeemed themselves. But that first one, man, is just a lot of fun because I was talking to my buddy Jacob about this that, uh, there's the Hadouken like um yes hidden capsule and i've never gotten that i've got everything else but that so i'm just trying to get the hadouken capsule do you know how yeah so you have okay. to go it, it's the um i'm trying to remember because he explained it to me that you have to go back to the armored armadillo stage like a certain amount of times and but you have to go further up right before you get to the end you have to go up or screw up exit out the stage go back to the stage do the same thing like four or five times and then it magically appears literally gives you um power to destroy every single type of villain that's you know around which is pretty cool in itself i uh i've been trying to beat that game um i unlock the hadouken i go to sigma i kill the dog with the hadouken and then i kill sigma and then he respawns and i get destroyed that game is so hard <laughs> i hate sigma but um I love Mega Man X, Mega Man X four, five, six. That's my jam. Sorry, I could talk for. We could do a Mega Man pals. That's how much <laughs> I love Mega Man. Yeah, but, try um the uh the 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 armadillo's weapon, like that that pink rolling like plasma orb thing. Try that on the floating Sigma head. I'm pretty sure that's the ticket right there. Oh, all right. I didn't expect to get tips on how to beat the game. I, we got to end this podcast so I can go beat Mega Man X. <laughs> all right tj thank you so much uh before we go let the people know once again where they can find you on social media where they can find the books and just you know keep connected absolutely so again it's been an absolute pleasure to hang out with you guys thank you so much for the time um comic pals are incredible guys please check out their other podcasts and all the stuff they have going on they're, they're super legit and they're super thorough um if you want to check the stuff out i have going on um it's pretty easy um at ray comics r-a-e comics on twitter Facebook and on Instagram. And uh, you can check out my website, which is the best place to get all of the stuff that you see here in the background and a whole lot more. RayComics.com, R A E comics.com. Awesome. Uh, this will not be, I don't imagine, the last time we speak in this platform. So uh, until next time, thank you again, TJ. Appreciate it. Definitely. Sean, Pete, Kale. Kale, how do you spell your name? Like, uh, I'm just curious. With a C C A L. Perfect. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> that I've never the first met, thing I noticed met anybody with that name. So it's, just, it's cool. It's very cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like it, but way. it's a pleasure. Thank you guys again, man, for taking the time. And hopefully we can do this again really soon. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Absolutely. If, you, if you got something, shoot us an email. We'll have you on. Perfect. Perfect. I definitely will. All right. So that was a that was an awesome conversation with TJ. Unfortunately, Pete had to cut out. He's not feeling well. Got uh, the spooks. The spooks got to him. And I hope that's all it is. Uh, <laughs> we wish Pete well. Kale and I will find a way to truck along without Pete. Um, Drag ourselves through the desert of podcasting. <laughs> Welcome to the desert of podcasting. Of podcasting. Um, this is a pairing we've never done before, so uh, write in are, and let us know what you think. If there are awkward silences, let us know. Do they work? <laughs>
So let's uh, let's jump into the pals pulls. Speaking of Sentai, Kale actually pulls a double dose of it. This is my uh, now. Hold on, Sentai is one specific thing. <laughs> it is the, the brand. The genre is called Tokusatsu. Oh, okay. That's my ignorance. Tokusatsu. Sen- yeah, yeah, yeah. Sentai is the Power Rangers version. And then there's Ultraman, Kamen Rider, and a bunch of other stuff. Godzilla is technically Tokusatsu. Why? Uh, so it's I I'm paraphrasing basically, but the genre is basically special effects and people in costumes. Okay. It's, okay. It's, it it's heavily it heavily relies on special effects. Is basically the thing. Okay. So, like, interesting. In, in like Godzilla, you know, you got the guys in the costumes and the miniature models of cities that they stomp around in. Right. That's where the you know the genre like starts. Wow. Learn something new every day on the comics, pals. I'm telling you, when we get to this Power Rangers news segment, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mind meld you. I got, I got some learning to do for you. Awesome. Well, well, learn me about uh, Rise of the Ultraman number three. I haven't read it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, supposedly, in this issue, uh, the main character, whose name I've utterly forgotten, <laughs> is going to uh, be officially joined with Ultraman, um, which is a common Ultraman trope. Uh, the cover has uh, Ultraman as a, a normal sized person, which is not normal. Normally he's the, the size of a giant Kaiju oh. and uh, you know, he fights on the, on, on the miniature sized buildings or whatever. Um, so if, if I remember correctly in the previous issue, there were reasons that Ultraman didn't want to pair with the main character. Um, and, and it came, it boils down to basically the guy's not perfect, but the guy was like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but like, look, I try, I have a good heart. And this is really what humanity's about. Mm. And Ultraman was like, okay, yeah, I can see that. I can work with that, but there are going to be some problems. So the fact okay. that he's not a 20 foot giant, may be one of those problems. Interesting. All right. Um, and then Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, I assume, number one. It is Power, it is Power Rangers. The, I, the title of the book is just Mighty Morphin. Hmm. So this, I think, is the new era of the Power Rangers comics that they, they talked about a year or two ago. Post-Battle for the Grid, they finished Go-Go Power Rangers. Right. I think now there are new... There are, uh, uh, new titles. So there's Mighty Morphin, which I think follows the regular team with Tommy as the White Ranger. Mm. And a mysterious person as the new Green Ranger. <laughs> um, so that's this one. Gotta find cool. out who that Green Ranger is. I fell off, man. I did. Fell honestly, off. I did too. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Battle for the Grid was like, okay, I get it. I know what's going to happen. And now, now we're just in superhero comics territory. I'll pick it up if something that sounds interesting, but 
I, uh, I'm collecting go-go because I like the sort of slice of life element to it, but yeah, I don't know. I was on the train. I think battle for the grid. I had a similar experience where I was like, all right, this is pretty paint by numbers. So I've read this before at two other companies about every year for the past 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. Um, Pete and I both chose X-Men 14. Um, I'll speak to it by saying that it's more of uh, X of Swords, Ten of Swords. So I'm in, you know. Ringing endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to read more of, of Jonathan Hickman's take. I said it last week, I think. My, my, my biggest issue with this whole thing is just that he's not writing at all. So I want to see what he has to say. And X-Men 13 was pretty good. So that was um, the apocalypse issue that we yeah. with Mahmoud Azrar. Yeah. 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 That was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, let's jump into the news. We've got, we've got uh, a bombshell. So we're getting a Moon Knight series, which would be big enough. It's coming to Damn. Disney plus right now. Let me top that. How could Oscar, you? Oscar Isaac is playing Moon Knight. Whoa. That's actually a sarcastic bit aside. Like, that's actually really cool. <laughs> I'm pretty down for that. Yeah. So, first, first of all, are you surprised that they're doing a Moon Knight series? No. This is something I feel like has been rumored and talked about for a really long time. Especially in the wake of like the the first season of Daredevil yeah. on Netflix, I think I think it's a similar shade um, that I think you know they can probably get away with since Daredevil is with Netflix or they can't use him for or whatever. It's funny because uh, when this when this announcement came up and I saw it, I was I didn't even. And have a reaction because it seemed like something that was already announced somehow and yeah. it wasn't, but it's just, that's how like obvious this was in, in the coming, um, in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always thought if the Netflix stuff had continued, eventually they would have had to add a new character and it would have been Moon Knight. Yeah. It's the one that makes the most sense. Right. Which leads me to my next question. Do you think that, in the Disney Plus space, in the you know the more the closer to the MCU space, that this has the opportunity to be what it needs to be to be good. Now that is an excellent question. Um, I don't know. I think it depends on what they're going to allow them to do. Yeah. Um, the I haven't seen the Mandalorian. You have, haven't you? Oh yeah, I love it. It's pretty gritty, mm-hmm. isn't it? Like for a Star Wars property? Yeah. I think if they can keep it to that level and keep it like family friendly enough, but still dark and gritty, uh, I think it'll be fine. I don't know if it will hit the Daredevil level of success. And I, I, I wonder if Disney putting it out will be that that thing that hampers it yeah i'm inclined to agree i think uh moon knight is a very weird character which is fine but 
um, the darker elements of his personality and the different things that he can do and all of that, it, it, if, if they're not willing to allow him to be what he is, I don't feel like there's a, a reason to do it. And I worry that he's just going to be like a Deadpool light or something like that. Hmm. Um, I could see them going into that realm because of the, the like he's got this, the different personalities thing going on. Yeah. I could see that being played for humor more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I hope that's not what they do because he is cool. And they're supposedly trying to make Deadpool work. Right. Like I've heard Ryan Reynolds is in talks to, to really try and make it work. He wants to do it. Yeah. So um, that is, and that is coming. So I don't know. Kevin Feige really hasn't like what character can you think of that you really like from Marvel that was a disappointment in terms of how uh, they've been presented in the MCU? Can't really. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Hmm. Okay. Unless I, I, you know, and, and that revolves around like uh, his relationship with Tony Stark, I think. Right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know really on what level that would. Yeah. Okay. But that, that would be like the only one you would say. That's the first yeah. one that comes to off, mind. Yeah. Off the top of your head. Yeah. I, I really don't have an answer for that. Um, there are characters like I wish they might have done something more with, like Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. I wish he wouldn't have died the way he did so fast. Um, but other than that, I feel like every character has been represented pretty close to what I want to see. Yeah. Um, and, and in some cases, like Ant-Man, better. Yeah. And that's, a, that's been one of the cool things about the MCU is that because they had such a limited roster of who they were allowed to use, mm-hmm. they really had to make mountains out of molehills um and they did that with characters like ant-man um even wasp i feel like i mean it's it's a different character it's not it's not janet van dyne in the way that she was presented um you know in the early days of the avengers but she's she's actually better so even with that old stuff they've made it work really well with you know janet van dyne case in point being michelle pfeiffer and uh ant-man being uh uh, uh michael oh uh michael uh, douglas michael, michael douglas. douglas yeah uh you know be, being older people and making that sort of a, a first generation superhero and frankly adding more to their universe you know yeah that was actually a pretty cool twist um yeah so so that Whenever I think something negative about the future of the MCU, I try to remember like, oh, I actually have no negative opinions about this at all. So why should I have like, why should I be worried about the future? Um, This will probably be cool. Oscar Isaac being attached to it is interesting. I know Pete was going to bring up um, how maybe this was a way of keeping him in the fold because of the fact that, you know, he was kind of unhappy with what Mm -hmm. happened with Star Wars. Um, I think that that's a take, you know, it's possible that that played a factor, but he's also a really popular actor that you would want to use and a very talented one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The star Wars thing. I like, I, I certainly don't think that, you know, I don't have necessarily an opinion about that. He did seem, you know, in interviews and things, he, he seemed unhappy about the way 
that whole thing played out. And I think it is interesting that he would come back and, you know, not necessarily to Star Wars, but to Disney because it's I, like I and and I think Pete's and I'm, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but in our n- news thread, this was the argument he presented. Star Wars and Marvel are different subsidiaries and I, I guess therefore different studios, which makes sense, but they're also under the big boy umbrella of Disney. Yeah. Which is like even more of the, you know, the, I would argue even more of the, 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 the barrier there than Star Wars or Marvel, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, I don't know how much of like the Star Wars narrative you follow in terms of the behind the scenes stuff, but I get into all that. And Star Wars for the last decade, literally all of those years had a reputation for being extremely controlling Mm -hmm. over what would get presented. Like Disney had a, uh, uh, a reputation for being extremely controlling over what they were doing. Kathleen Kennedy, who was the president of Lucasfilm, uh, had a similar representation or um, reputation, rather. A lot of directors ended up quitting. You know, obviously, Colin Trevorrow was supposed to direct um, what ended up being Rise of Skywalker. Right. He jumped ship. Um, uh, they had the movie that was supposed to be done by, uh, well, Lord and Miller. They did um, the uh, solo movie. Right. That was and a then, very, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Ron Howard came in took that over exactly yeah he came in because that was a that was a weird situation so like then there's and there's others too the dude who directed josh trank who directed fantastic four that masterpiece uh (laughs) he he let he was left fired whatever we don't really know the full story but he had a a project he was going to be doing as well so so many different projects so many directors that left projects or whatever because of the tough environment of working with Lucasfilm slash Disney mm-hmm. on Star Wars projects. Marvel doesn't have that reputation. So I could see if Oscar Isaac knows yeah. these things, he might say, well, that was rough, but this is Kevin Feige. This is Marvel. Great track record. So you look at the difference between um, the conversation around these two entities for, the, for that decade, and it's night and day. Mm. So maybe that's what he's thinking. Mm. And also, Moon Knight would probably be a super interesting character to play, especially yeah. in the the long form, you know, TV series format, as opposed to you know the two or three hour movie. That would probably work really well for for an actor looking to you know do more with his craft. And that's the I think you hit on the coolest thing, and the reason why I think a lot of actors would want this role is that you get to be. A superhero, right? You mm-hmm. are in, you are in a Marvel property, but you get to play a character who's interesting and complex, mm-hmm. um, and not all of them are always like that. So I think this is a good marriage, and it's really just going to come down to what version of Moon Knight Marvel is comfortable putting out there, and if they do it the way that they should, um, I'm into it. I think this will be a real test as to whether. Uh, Disney Plus can stand next to or even above the Netflix Daredevil stuff 
and I say Daredevil very specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's so weird because like we have no track record for this. Like this announcement, if things had progressed normally, we would already have Falcon and Winter Soldier under our belt. And we would have uh, Scarlet Witch and Visions, WandaVision, like either it would have started already or um, it'd, be, it'd be a month away or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So we would know like, okay, Falcon and Winter Soldier was awesome and it was the same as a movie, just longer. Mm-hmm. Um, we can expect a similar level of quality. We don't know what to think from that yeah. perspective. So. Yeah. All we've um, got is uh, casting announcements at this point. Yeah, I'm into it. Have you? I I've, I've seen this floating around because I've been hanging out on Tumblr again. Um, oh, no. You want to buy some Ray Bans, by the way? <laughs> I'm good. That's a that's a Tumblr joke that no one in our audience is going to get. Um, I've seen that uh, Tatiana uh, Maslany isn't actually confirmed to play She Hulk. What? Yeah, really? I don't know. Yeah, I guess I guess, and and this is only from a vague Tumblr post, but. The uh, the implication was that they were in talks, but nothing was official. And uh, she said that uh, she doesn't know where all this is coming from. So, the day I trust an actor when they say something like that, um, fair. yeah, fair. yeah, I just I just don't believe it. Um, I think it's it's for for it to circulate as much as it did, there has to be some some confirmation. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, if if there's anything, if it's not confirmed, I'm sure we'll end up talking about it. But as of now, in my mind, it's a done deal. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's done is uh, Brian Edward Hill is going to be writing a Power Rangers movie. So fucking cool. God damn. This is awesome. Um, so we learned this week that we're getting, well, we've, we've known that there's a new Power Rangers movie uh, coming. It's going to be a reboot. Um, but now we learned that Brian Edward Hill, obviously, who's been on this show before, written for everybody, um, you know, has done Batman stuff. Um, he's done some Spider-Man stuff. He wrote a Killmonger series. He's Angel and Spike. Uh, he's currently writing over at Boom. Uh, Titans as well on uh, he's, yep. D- on DC Plus or whatever the fuck. D- the, yeah, the DC Universe app. He's a producer and a writer of that show. Uh, he's going to be lending his incredibly talented pen to Power Rangers um, with a director also on board, Jonathan Entwistle, uh, who's going to be um, who's going to be directing it. Um, and also, there's going to be a, like a new series, a tie-in series that he will be involved with as well. Oh, I hadn't heard that part. Sick. Yeah. Yep. Um, this is obviously right up your alley. Yeah. So uh, the 20... Geez, when did that movie come out? 2017? 17, I want to say. 16? Uh, I don't know. I guess it depends on your opinion. I really liked it. I, Me too. I, you know, I thought they could have spent more time in the suits, but, you know, uh, what do you do? Um, but it clearly wasn't what the suits wanted, right? Um, 
So it's really the growth and the the Power Rangers boom, so to speak, uh, has been really interesting over the past few years. Um, Nickelodeon has been uh, trying to <laughs> make Power Rangers happen for a long time, and I, I I've always been curious as to to how it uh, how it does. Um. Because, like, when you watch it, like, it's not very good. Like, it, it's what you think Power Rangers looks like in 2020. About the same, a little bit better camera tricks and special effects, but not great. Um, so, uh, it's interesting that Brian Edward Hill is, is going to tackle a whole new movie that's going to spin off into the TV show. What, uh, what I'm interested in and even a little bit cautious about is how they're going to make, well, I mean, we don't know this for sure, but how they're going to make Mighty Morphin Power Rangers happen again. The, the thing about, um, Super Sentai and the tokusatsu genre if you if you count them like the pillars being Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, and Ultraman, one of the things that keeps them interesting is that basically every year, year and a half, they throw everything out the window and start again. It's a whole new subject. It's a whole new cast, a whole new story, uh, and they do it every year. Since like like it's been ongoing, Common Writer has been ongoing since like two thousand. Wow! And, and I think this is probably this year because of the coronavirus has probably been the longest break. And they still showed three episodes to push their story along, so they could get a new series in. In trying to copy that format, I think. You know, they say something doesn't translate in mm. America. And I, I'm interested to see what they think will bring audiences back or how, the, how they're going to make it relevant. That, so that was what took Power Rangers or took me away from Power Rangers was the fact that I, you know, I fell in love with this, with this initial cast and, you know, they were around for a while. Like, I feel like that season Mighty Morphin was pretty long. Um, the first season well, or whatever. And it evolved up to evolved. Turbo. And even though it had a different cast, you still had like the anchor of Zordon and Alpha right. even up into in space. Yeah. Like it was the same story. And like, yeah. I loved how it carried over. But then once they did in space, and then I think there was another one um, that was like loosely related, like right after. Uh, yes, yes, Lost Galaxy. Because, Lost Galaxy, yeah. Uh, Andros's sister from in space, who was astronomer, became the Pink Ranger. Corona. Right, right. Um, that was the last season. Lost Galaxy was the last season that I watched consistently. Because it, it, it had it had gone too far for me away from what I 
the characters I loved and that that story. So I think um, with American audiences, and this is something that we talk about all the time, um, and you know, obviously some of us mind it greatly and some of us don't, we don't like stories to end. Mm. And the Power Rangers stories evolve quick, like you just said, because every season now um, with a, a, like after Lost Galaxy, I feel like every, every year was or every couple of years was something new. Mm. And I think you can kind of track, obviously, we're out of the 90s and, you know, maybe just in general, there's not as much interest in Power Rangers at that point. But I think alongside that was all this change. And um, I know for me, that was what caused me to jump off. So they're going to have to find a way to keep the American audience intrigued, even though the way I understand how they make Power Rangers, like they have a limited amount of footage. They can't. They don't have all this footage. Rumor is, and this, this was something else I wanted to talk about. Rumor is uh, Hasbro, Hasbro bought Power Rangers from um, uh, Haim Saban and Bandai right. last year. And uh, there's, you, know, you can see the change in like the toys and blah, blah, blah. But rumor is Hasbro is going to, Stop using the Toei footage really? altogether. Whoa. Um, so this the way so for those who don't know, uh, and how could you not know, uh, the way Power Rangers was filmed is they would take the battle footage and Zord footage and you know the various in costume parts of uh Super Sentai and they would transpose it with the teenager parts uh in america and so it's it and it's incredible some of the stuff they've done so like the white ranger in uh mighty morphin power rangers is not in the same uh show as the mighty morphin power rangers at all he's in a completely different show and, work? and they must <laughs> I don't know. They uh they must have done like a, a a a cut splice or maybe they, you know, uh put it together themselves and got the costumes or whatever. But in in the show that the White Ranger is in, he's actually a little kid. Similar to uh, the blue that was Turbo my Ranger, favorite Ranger, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the blue Ranger from the from Turbo, but way younger. He might be like four or five. <laughs> wow, um, it's it's incredible. And then like because I, um, if you're interested in any of this at all, if you have Pluto TV, uh, there's a network called uh, Toku Shoutsu, which shows all this old stuff, um, and the the work they had to do with the Zords is, especially in those later seasons of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, is incredible. Damn. So, like, do you remember how all of a sudden Rocky had a Red Dragon Ranger? Yeah. That Red Dragon Ranger is actually, like, the Red Prince of the Stars or whatever. And he, when he transforms for battle... He rides on the back of like a green tortoise and it's a whole Zord itself. So like 
it's the way they had to make all this pick and choose just little bits of everything is an art in itself. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy to see it all actually in context. I got to watch a documentary or something, man, because I'm, I'm enthralled by you telling me this. Like, it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've just been piecing it together by myself. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's wild. I'll stumble across something and be like, what? That's um, pretty cool. So, I mean, the, the future of Power Rangers uh, is way up in the air right now. And it's pretty crazy. It's, I would say it's up in the air, but it looks like they actually really want to do something special and cool. I, I feel like, though, on the big screen, they're not going to get too many more chances if this, if this movie here doesn't work out. Um, I think it's one of those things. Yeah, I, th- I, I think they're either going to have to lean into the camp a little bit or figure out how to or i i don't know or make the reality of it work i read that there was going to be a time travel element to this movie um i think i remember reading that a few years ago as well yeah yeah so years ago the last time it came up (laughs) i'm i'm intrigued by that I, i don't know what i want to be honest like i liked the last one i thought it was good um, you know, but it's good in the way that a Power Rangers, co- that Power Rangers content is good. It's not like some masterpiece like movie. It's, you know, Power Rangers like, all right, great. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. I don't sit around thinking about it all day, but I enjoyed it. What's um, that like? Because <laughs> I could use help. I need help. Listen, man, I got nothing to offer you. Um, uh, so I think it. Like, I think if they give us that, but maybe it was too dark for people. I, I really don't know. I don't know what, what it is yeah. that people want. Um, maybe, maybe the CG suits were too expensive or actually they weren't CG. I say that. I, so where I lived in New Zealand, uh, Wellington, is Peter Jackson's uh, studio. Mm. Like where it's called the Weta Workshop. It's like a world-renowned uh special effects workshop they built the costumes there uh so i like that like the armor so they weren't cg (laughs) uh i don't know yeah i don't know well uh we're probably still a couple of years away from this movie and the accompanying show we don't have any casting information yet um but you know at least Kale and I will be thinking about it. So when Power Ranger stuff comes up, um, you know, you might hear it from us. If you if you watched the the movie, the most recent movie, let us know what you thought about it. Like, did you like it? And uh, if you didn't, what was missing for you to like it? I'm curious. Mm. Uh, and then the last bit of news we've got here is actually another film announcement. We're getting a strange talent of Luther Strode movie. Uh, and in fact, it's from the same people who produced um, Power Rangers and um, the Bloodshot film. Huh. All right. Do you have you read uh, Luther Strode? I've read may, maybe the first volume. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting. The and someone brought it up in the Discord 
but I think Murphy said what I'm about to say very specifically. The thing that makes Luther Strode so interesting is Tradmore's art. He has this wild, bright style that is, man, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, so, you know, the green muscly guy from Street Fighter? Blanca. Okay. Turn the brightness on him up and then the muscles up and then like the blood up. And that's oh Tradmore's art. <laughs> and that's Luther Strode. Basically, that's basically the story of Luther Strode. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. Is it, mm. is it going to be live action? Uh, from what I know, yeah. It, it, uh, by all accounts, it'll be a live action film, yeah. That'll be, it'll be interesting. I could easily see this going down the road of like a kick-ass. Mm. Uh, and that's not super interesting to me. But I would be interested to see what they do with the style and how they keep true to the art. That's the, that's the thing about adapting uh, comics sometimes. And I think we saw it a lot uh, in the early 2000s where it can be difficult to translate what it is that makes comic book characters so compelling visually uh, to the screen. Like, would the X-Men, if the X-Men in the comics looked like the X-Men from the, the 2000s movies from the start, right? Like, let's say that that was the original design. We wouldn't be talking about that today. We wouldn't, no one would talk about the X-Men. It would not be popular. Yeah. Um, and the reason that they popped, the reason why the 90s were dominated by the X-Men is because of the incredible artwork and the incredible costume designs and everything else. You, if you don't translate that, then what you get is a lesser product. Luckily, people found something to connect with with that particular group that they were able to survive on screen, most likely because of the fandom from the 90s and, you know, early, and the earlier years. Yeah. Luther Strode is, is a comic book that doesn't necessarily have this crazy audience that's going to turn up to theaters, so they're going to need to be able to capture the essence of what makes that character compelling mm. visually on screen. That's, that's a tough job. I don't remember what makes it compelling uh, in the book. Right. Like you just said, the artwork is kind of what gets you into the door. Yeah. So if that's the case for this book, then what's the hook? If you don't have that artwork, how do you translate that to an audience? It's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, know how that'll work. I don't, I don't envy that job. Um, the most important thing though, is that faithfulness. Uh, it seems like it's kind of a wild book. Like I've never read it. Um, but you mentioned kick-ass mm. and for some reason that connected with me as like a, a way in. It's very, it's very violent and bloody and like people like explode because this guy is like so muscly. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit of a joke, but there's a kernel of truth in there. It's been a while since I read it, so. Uh, but that's what I remember. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, look, I'm not even gonna lie. I don't, I don't have an interest in this um, in terms of like a film adaptation. 
unless the book is really great, like it, you know, is it worth reading? Yeah. Yeah. It feels, it feels a little bit like, and this is old image at this point. Uh, well, I mean, 2012, 13 image. Um, uh, but it feels a bit like the, the conversation around like, well, we got to make something. What are the comic books doing? Yep. Absolutely. Um, which as an aside, I'm, su- I'm really surprised no one has picked up on monstrous. That's so weird. Yeah. Like I'm if you're sure, looking at image, surely it, I'm sure it's been mentioned. Like say, yeah, I was, because I was just thinking as I was thinking of that statement, I was thinking about the wicked and the divine. That's another one. That's like a no brainer. Like it, those are books. I'm not trying to decry Luther Strode, but I feel like monstrous wicked and the divine. Those are books that like really hit like yeah. Marjorie Lou became a superstar off mm-hmm. of monstrous. What was she doing before that? Like, you know, like she wrote some some uh, X twenty three stuff and things like that at Marvel, but Monstrous is the book, and now you can't yep. even get an interview with this woman. Yep. So, <laughs> where's that at? You know? Saga, Saga, yeah, of course. Although I think that's been in like a development hell situation since it got off the ground. So, yeah, you're probably right. Um, but in any event, I hope my biggest hope for this is that. As, as with all of these types of adaptations is that it leads to a payday for the creators. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hope the adaptation is faithful in some way. Um, I mean, with, you know, even if it were animated to some degree, like the wonders they did with Spider-Verse, like there's no excuse to not try. Actually, I think you make a good, that could be really cool. Could you imagine like a, Oh, like a, a partially animated, like I don't know, like some type of mixture between live action and some form of animation. I don't know what this character's powers are, but when he like blasts somebody or hits them really hard or whatever, you can animate that that part of it. Like there's something there's something cool there. I think. So yeah, something um, that modern animation could do, right? That would make it work, and probably wouldn't feel too comic booky, but with you know in this the year of our lord 2020 in you know the midst of every single marvel movie for the past 20 years surely a little comic booky gimmick wouldn't kill it i think i think the people are are well adapted to yeah. what this is you know to what comic book movies can be and if it, if it's if it's cool if the trailer's cool and the word of mouth is good people turn up that's yeah. you know yeah. so um i'm hopeful that this ends up being something good i'm always looking for a new book to read so if the book's good and the movie adaptation is good i'll be there um you know what else i'm here for maybe death metal oh yeah okay you can be here can i be i'm going to be over there <laughs> Unfortunately, Kale, you actually have to be here with me as we discuss uh, Dark Knight's Death Metal Rise of the New God number one. So this was actually two stories in one. Um, sort of. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, very strangely split. So the first story is Rise of the New God by uh, James Tinian, 
with art by Jesus Marino um, and Vincent Cifuentes on inks um, and Ulysses Ariola on colors. So a solid creative team, but I actually really did not care for this story. When people say that James Tinian is too wordy, this is a prime example of that. I think there were a lot of things in this issue that could have been left to the imagination without the prose. I agree. Um, And I'm, I'm a generally a fan of Tinian's work, uh, but if I had to criticize it, that would be, you know, where I would go. Um, I don't really know if I love what he does in general when it comes to like the, the headier stuff, like the bigger, higher concept stuff, the cosmic stuff. Mm. Um, he, he and Snyder both struggle to distill those things into digestible words. Like we don't need mm. all these words, you know, we can do, yeah. we can tell this story. Like there's just some pages where it, it's just incredible. Like, like here's a, here's a random page that I went to. Right. And I'm going to show this for the YouTube people. Like this, this panel here that I'm pointing to, I don't know if you can see that. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah, it's the section with uh, Brainiac. Yes, it's Brainiac's kid, at, I think. And he's like his, his entire body, the entire top and left side or right side, rather, of his whole body is engulfed in, in, in text, um, in, in word balloon. It's just it's a lot. And like. It's unnecessary. Well, and and there were even like I'm trying to find this very specific. Oh, oh, oh! It was right after, right after that. Actually, you get this big splash page of of the the evil bat guy and Perpetua fighting, and there's text all over it. And this chronicler guy is walking across the moon, I guess. And I looked at that and I went. I don't need any of these words. I get this. I know what this is. Right. And that, and that's, that's again, like, you know, let the, let the art tell the story. Um, Yeah. You don't get to live in it. Right. It's a visual medium. We don't always need to be inundated with words. And that's something that I, I do feel like uh, Tinian does struggle with. And it, it also, so the framing device of the chronicler, chronicling the end of the multiverse right um that's kind of what the story is and the backdrop of that is this fight between whatever the batman who laughs has evolved into and perpetua um the the battle between them did not feel relevant uh it, it felt like it didn't matter they're telling me with words that it's the most important thing that's happening. But the visuals of the book don't translate that. And the fact that so much of the story is focused on the chronicler, like falling in love with this universe, like that's kind of cute as a, as an idea. It's a cute idea and stuff. I don't know if I needed to buy a $6 comic book to get that point across i i I, like i just i'm just being honest i don't know if i needed this issue to tell me 
that the DC universe is worth caring about. I already know that. I buy books in the DC universe. Like, I get that. I like it, you know. I don't need the Chronicler to reinforce that concept. And if that's how he feels, that's fine. Show me that in the pages of Death Metal. That's the biggest issue that I've had with this event so far. Well, and I think I think the thing is, like, there was so much so much to read here that I didn't feel his disinterest. Right. You know, yeah. so he, he's from this big overworld or whatever, and yeah, he doesn't care about the DC multiverse or whatever. Oh, but he's here, and now he does. Neat. But we didn't even get that change. And I like, right. I actually like the framing device in like the same way. Do you remember in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the opening scene, how it focuses on Groot sure. uh, instead of the big battle? That's how I felt about this book is like, okay, I, I know what's happening in the background. They're just going to beat the shit out of each other. I get that. Uh, I found this interesting in that way. If okay, so I'm with you on that. So if in the pages of Death Metal right now, right, we were watching the battle between Perpetua and this evolved Batman who laughs, and it was focused on that and the importance of that and everything else, and the heroes trying to stop that. And then there was a tie-in issue like this where it pulled it, it kind of zoomed in on the chronicler and all of this stuff that this book is saying, that works a lot better. The problem is that this battle, for anybody who's been reading DC Comics since Scott Snyder's run on Justice League began, you realize that this battle is extremely important. This is what Snyder's been building towards for like two to three years. That should not take place in a tie-in book where that's not the focus. Like this is the follow-up to, what is it, Death Metal 4? Yeah. Like, why, why isn't this Death Metal 5? Like, yeah, exactly. An expanded issue. Cut the, um, the back, the, the side story that, that, uh, that Hill wrote. Meant nothing. Um, yeah. And just let that book breathe and encompass more and make it feel more epic. This didn't, for me, the battle between these two characters did not feel epic. Well, <coughs> excuse me, and even the character work of this, you know, this great big, uh, I don't know, cosmic corporate guy, like there was nothing to it. He's got a briefcase for Christ's sake, like make him a yeah. pencil pusher. It just didn't, I, I, there was nothing to this. The only conversation because the chronicler speaks to um, the the new brainiac, uh, he speaks to um, uh, psycho what's his pirate, name? psycho pirate, who I really love always. Yep, and Metron, and I I I loved the conversation that he had with Metron. That one I was I was into. I was compelled by that because I haven't seen Metron in a while, and. Um, it was just it was just interesting. But the Brainiac one, I don't like what 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 value did that add? Yeah. I I wonder if the idea here was he 
he talks to Psycho Pirate as like a way to see what has happened. Yeah. You know, the crisis is past, as it were. He talks to uh, Brainiac. This Brainiac is uh, a legion of superheroes character. Mm. Um, so my thinking is he's investigating the future past what Psycho Pirate knows. And then he's going back to Metron to fix it. Um, and that's And that's sort of my thing with this is like, well, Metron's alive now. The, fir- the, f- the first page of this book is about how the Mobius share is so important. Well, Metron's alive now. He's probably just going to fix it. And that'll be the book. So why are we here? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't really know. Um, and I, I, I felt the need for us to read this because of how important some of the other tie-ins have been. But then, you know, we, we pick this up and it's just like, all right, I don't yeah. really know. Like the, the most important thing that happened in this book by far is the fact that Metron's alive. Yeah. But that's it. Other than that, it's just like, oh, yeah, um, the DC universe is worth caring about. All right. Well, and, and I guess, I guess Psycho Pirate means this is a crisis. But I mean, that's a, you know. Not something that means anything. <laughs> yeah, like we we know that it's a crisis, just not named yeah. such. Um, I don't know. So then, so then we move on. Well, actually, let's talk about the art a little bit because I actually felt like um, the art was pretty solid. Um, Jesus does a really good job of showcasing this 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 huge epic battle. I felt. Um, yeah, yeah. The splashes and bigger tableaus in in the pages in this are incredible. Yeah, I mean, look at this. Look at this splash page here. Like it's just, it's just absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he just does such Fucking, a tremendous job. Like perpetual throwing a planet. That's what I was gonna is, say. Is smashing planets into each other. That is buck wild. Um, and and the smaller moments work too. Like. There's nothing crazy on them. Um, I thought some of the paneling was pretty interesting. Um, and and it, it's tough to translate sometimes this, the, the like cosmic of, of it all. Mm. And I think he does an effective job at that. But again, there's some pages where like I would have loved to just kind of appreciate the art more. And then they're just inundated with, uh, with you know, panels and all yep. kinds of dialogue. Yeah, um, I love the design of the chronicler, though. Yeah, it grew on me. The more I looked at him, the more I was like, "Oh, he looks pretty cool." Love that he's got a briefcase. I think that's absolutely hilarious. I love it. Yeah, um, yeah, he's a cool looking character. Is he? Is he new to us? I think so. Yeah. I mean, if, if, he, if he was newer than this, or, uh, you know, older than the previous crisis and, you know, newer than that, you would probably know better than I would. But the fact that you haven't seen him, and I know he doesn't exist way back then, yeah, he's yeah. got to be brand new. Yeah. And I wonder, like, 
and that and that's another thing. So what is the point of introducing him now? Like I would like if if he doesn't end up being a factor in how things resolve, then that tells me that this issue was a waste. I mean, he resurrects Metron. Is that not a factor? Yeah, but that, but for me, that feels like it's like okay, it's Deus Ex Machina for sure. Exactly. But it's Deus Ex Machina. You know, it's it's a technique for a reason. <laughs> I feel like there's so many characters who could do that though. Like there's so many characters in DC who could just be like, all right, let's bring back Metron. I mean, or so many methods. Bat Bat Boy is uh, Doctor Manhattan right now, so he's not going to do it. Yeah. I I don't know. Um, I I I really I really think he's just a you know a, a a mouthpiece for you know if if you're looking at death metal as another um, Scott Snyder commentary on story and then comic books, I think the Chronicler is just another meta mouthpiece. Mm. You know, and and to that, that's actually a great point. That makes me feel like he should have been introduced in the first issue of Death Metal. Even metal. Like even even metal. But if they didn't have the idea at that point, then the the role that Sergeant Rock has played, where he's kind of like loosely telling you what's happened before and you know what's going on, catching you up. I feel like Chronicler could have done that. Like Chronicler feels like a ripoff of uh, The Watcher. Watu, yeah. The Watcher. So if he is that, then let him be that. Let <laughs> but him, you know. that's what Metron is supposed to be too. <laughs> Jesus. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, let's let's talk about the the Brian Hill portion. Um, and it, I mean it real briefly because there really isn't much to it. Um, when I saw his name on this book, I was really excited, and then almost immediately I realized that they basically gave him nothing. Um, he gets you know like a few pages. Uh, it's like seven pages. Um, and it, it's really just about John Stewart kind of shepherding the group and leading the, 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 the green lantern troops. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Like the end, the end of the story is what he's giving them all, like all these, um, kind of low level heroes. He's giving them lantern rings. Is that what I'm supposed to get? I guess so. I like, I'm not I, even yeah, sure. I guess the Else Worlds characters are gonna come in and save the day as Green Lanterns. They're not. Like they're 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 most likely not gonna impact. DC ain't letting anyone but Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman save this save the day here. Well, yeah, but they'll be the background, you know. Yeah. Smiley, um, the smiley group that Wonder Woman tears a wall down to find. Oh, everybody's just happily in one room and in costume and smiling and i hated that page yeah whatever issue that was um yeah i I wasn't i wasn't uh i I clearly you can tell i I wasn't the biggest fan of this this issue overall um my biggest problem with death metal is and normally i'm all for it i feel like the tie-ins have just kind of been either too good in the sense of like this should be a main yeah. issue or completely like throwaway. Mm-hmm. Um and for me this falls away this falls into the throwaway camp. The art's good, the chronicler's interesting, and he resurrects Metron, which is 
obviously a big deal, but um, I feel like those are things that you could do within the main story. You, you mean to tell me you can't find like five or 10 pages across all of what we've seen so far to get this point across? Or you can't, yeah, you can't make this stuff like Crisis on Infinite, Infinite Earth is like 24 issues. Oh my God. Like, if you're going to do it, just do it. Do it. Yeah. Go, yeah. Like, this is your event. Like, you've got the 24 issues anyway. Why are you wasting our time with stuff that, you know, doesn't matter? To your point, for better or worse, X of Swords is 22 issues. You know, like, and and for me, I've said before that I feel like we don't need all of them. To that, I feel like a lot of these tie-ins have felt like they're 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 as a part of the story as anything else. Mm-hmm. So, what do I care if you're going to add? If you're going to say, okay, it's not six issues, it's it's eight issues or it's, it's ten issues or whatever. Fine, okay, fine, whatever. I don't know. Do you do you think? the change in art is like the main uh, driver behind not doing that. Uh, explain that. Like, like, so you've got death metal, which is six issues, right? But if you add the tie-ins, you know, if you just swat them in as, as is, you know, that's a, a change in artist for like, Oh, six different issues at this point. Well, uh, so we've seen DC kind of find clever ways around that problem in Heroes in Crisis. They had the tie-in issue, not the tie-in issues, the the issues that originally were not planned, but they did them mm-hmm. to add context that were drawn by um, Mr. Mr. Was, was yeah, it? yeah, it was Mitch, and you know that was not jarring. You know that was actually pretty cool, mm-hmm. um, and it, it it also was like a clear indicator of. This is a part of the story, but it's not the story. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you could have done something like that. You know, the Greg Capullo's art is obviously a big selling point, but I wouldn't mind if you have artists like Jesus Marino come in and, you know, tell a portion of this story or whoever. Like DC has incredible artists. I don't think that that would have been a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they've done a lot worse in the past. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. For me, this, this one was not, this wasn't what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, let's talk about three jokers. All right. So this is, this is three of three. This is the, the finale, the grand finale. Um, man, boy, I gotta tell you, I was really hoping there would be four other people on this podcast so that I wouldn't have to say anything about this book. <laughs> Well, no, I think we're probably on the same page. I, I, um, I was frustrated by this. I was frustrated by this. You were really high on the, the previous two. So uh, you go ahead. Why, why were you so frustrated? Um, all right. So I, I, I want to start with the positives because I did have some positives. I still liked the interactions between Batman and Red Hood. Um, and you know, Barbara, and I thought the characterization elements were for the most part on point. And obviously, the art is bomb. So, this is Jeff Johns, Jason Fabok, and art, and Brad Anderson. Um, I, I thought, I thought 
that everyone did their job pretty effectively. But this book fell apart. I think it fell apart in, in, in that it's literally about the fact that there are three jokers and every single other thing it tries to do is just like what the hell um the fact that they're trying to create like an ultimate joker is just weird it's just it's just the joker okay the joker is a character who works because of how much you don't know rather than what you do and that's something that dc has done their best and for the most part done effectively to walk that tightrope you can't say who he really is because if you do then now he's not as scary it's it's the it's the unknown that makes him so horrifying because you don't know what he'll do he doesn't work when he has an agenda that's like really really specific um in i remember like death of the family he wanted to kill off all of the other members of the bat family because he wanted to be the only person who was important to batman and it's like all right fine like i don't care what his reasoning is him wanting to kill them is fine i didn't love that reasoning necessarily but this was written by scott lobdell no that was that was snyder was it yeah death of the family Oh, I'm thinking of the Titans. Lobdell was writing Titans at the time. Okay. I apologize. That's fine. Um, so, but, but, you know, the story was good. Like, I, I was fine with it. Um, and, the, and the conceit of why he was doing what he was doing was acceptable. This, though, there's, like, all these machinations. Now you're going to tell me that the Joker, there was one Joker, and then he had the bright idea to create more versions of himself. How did he know how to do that? And, and, what, and now I have to ask myself, okay, so the chemical um, that he fell into, that vat, would always create a joker? That's, uh, like, I don't want to be disrespectful. That's dumb. <laughs> like, it, I'm sorry. That's not... That I don't believe that. I just don't. And this is comics. I get it. But to me, that's not an excuse. You have to, you have to bring something to the table. I think, I, think what's, I think this book is a missed opportunity. Because I think the premise of Three Jokers is really interesting. Because like you say, you're not supposed to know anything about who the Joker is. And that's what makes him terrifying. What's more terrifying than one terrifying thing? Three of them. And even, even if you keep going with the basic premise that, oh, okay, they're trying to figure out a way to make more Jokers, that sort of adds to the lore of like that Grant Morrison introduced in uh, uh, his Batman run. Uh, it, well, it wasn't Batman 666, but it was like an all text, the Pros clown, the clown issue, at midnight. Yeah. yeah. It, it you know that that prose issue explored the idea that the reason there have been so many jokers so many different versions of the joker is that he sort of changes his personality every so often that's interesting you could do something like that with even just with this even just the idea that that might be different people 
that could, whoa, that could be fascinating. But they just, they utterly, they, I mean, I guess John's, you know, I don't, I, I can't totally put the blame on the art for that, but it just like, it completely misses it. It, it misses it. And then it's also like, all right, so he's a scientific genius now. Well, but like the, the thing about like the criminal Joker. Yeah. Is like, you know, back then, back when he was first made the Joker, there were like four things that could make you the Joker. So they probably weren't that hard to get a hold of, right? Bleach, green hair dye, uh, and lipstick chemicals. Oh, shit, I'm the Joker. Because he's not even off his rocker the way the other two are. But that's, but, but that's the point. That's what's so frustrating about it, is that I'm compelled by the idea that one guy is so crazy that he has all of these different sides to him and all of these different elements and he reinvents himself like you said like the the mystery and the legacy of that is what's compelling to me about the joker and it is the only thing that i find compelling about the joker but when you tell me that it's not one guy it's three guys and that each one of them is rigidly one of those elements and not only that, but that that level of, of, of insanity, that character who is so um, powerful and so insane that he's kept Batman on his toes for over 10 years in story, that that's something that you can recreate at will? Come on. That's, that's not that, – that to me, when I saw that that was what they were going with with this story here, I was like, okay, I don't care. I don't. And, I, I no longer care. And even worse, to reduce it to the version of the Joker that's like, no, you're only going to care about me, and I'm the most important thing, and I'm going to kill your whole family, and I'm going to be, I'm going to heal you so I can break you again. Just like, how many times have we seen that? That's Bane's whole shtick. That that yeah, that's Bane's whole shtick. That's that's the Joker's shtick. Like he wanted to, he killed. Um, in the death of the family, he wanted to kill all of the Robins and all of yeah. the sidekicks to alienate Batman so that he could fill that void. Mm -hmm. It's done to death. This is not new. But that's not the worst thing that this issue does. Believe it or not, somehow it's worse than that. The very, very end of the book, Batman says, oh, I've known who the Joker is God damn it. the whole time. Now, hold on. He does a worse crime. He says, he, he, I'm going to read it. It's so bad. He, he says, well, let me, um, let, let, let me, let me finish what I was going to say while you find that um, it'll tie in inevitably. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. Go ahead. Not to sound like people think I do, but I'm Batman. You motherfucker. Who do you think you are? Well, Batman. God damn it. <laughs> but what okay so we need to keep in mind something here i understand time you know works differently for different people we forget things why does batman know that there are three jokers for a fact well he knows it because he sat in the mobius chair and he asked a question the question was who is the joker what's the real identity of the joker and the mobius chair said which one mm. There's three. If 
that's true, then this cannot be true because he asked the question because he didn't know the answer. This is saying he's always known the answer. Those things do not work together. I Yeah, I guess if you, you know, like, you know, the, the question being which one, maybe he knew it was, you know, his, like, Bruce knew that version of the Joker is the Joker to him. But when he's, I guess when he's fighting the other two, he doesn't know it's them. He thinks it's that guy. So when he's in the Mobius chair and he's like, who is the Joker? A third of his answer is, oh, shit, I already know that. But what gives you the idea that he knew that there were multiple versions of the Joker, like multiple people that were the Joker? I mean, only only the, the Mobius chair thing. Right. So my, when he... Go ahead. My, my premise is that he thinks it's one guy. Right. So say he, you know, so he's fighting one guy. It happens to be the comedian, Joker number two. He's like, okay, I got this guy dead to rights. I know who he is. Happens to be Joker number two. He's Batman. Uh, he sits in the Metron chair, uh, the Mobius chair, and has no idea about the other two. And the Mobius chair is like, which one do you mean? There are three. With the implication, there are three. But Bruce is like, oh, shit, I only thought it was one. And I only thought it was this one. That's fine. But why would you ask that question if you already knew the answer? Like, he yeah. doesn't know, like you said, that there's three. So if he thinks there's one and he knows who it is, why would you even bother to waste your time to ask a question you know the answer to? Maybe. It, 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 just, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And the book doesn't attempt to make it make sense. And that's how I know that when this book was originally conceived, this is not that same book. This, is, this can't be that same book. Yeah. Because that doesn't make sense. Um, so that was extremely frustrating. This book also essentially says that now the Killing Joke origin is in continuity. That that is the origin of at least one of these Jokers. Theoretically, it's the origin of the original Joker. Whichever one that is. I, yeah, I guess. Because Batman says, I've always known, and presumably he knew... He's known the origin of the Joker since the Joker is, it, was born. He said, he was I've there. Known, yeah. He said, I've known since the first week. That means that all the other Jokers were created after that. Mm -hmm. So this is the origin of the original Joker. So DC accepted that now we have a nailed down origin of the Joker and Batman knows it and he knows his name. That's it. It makes them, it puts them on even ground, basically. The Joker and Batman. It does. And I don't like that. I don't think they ought to be. And, and yeah, I had that problem with uh, Death of the Family. Yeah, Death of the Family. Bruce walks into the Arkham after all that and is reinvigorated by his family or whatever and talks to the Joker. And the Joker's like, man, I know who you are. I've known for years. I don't give a shit. He, and he reiterates it here. I don't give a shit. I didn't mind that. I think the Joker knowing who Bruce is, um, his obsession with, with Batman would prevent him from 
using that information against him in a way that would be fatal because he doesn't want him to die. And I also don't think he wants other people to know that secret. I think he views that as like a, a not a bargaining chip, but like having that knowledge is precious to him because it's something that he shares almost exclusively with Batman mm-hmm. among Batman's villains. There's a small amount of them that know who he really is. I would say it's only Joker and uh, and Rachel Ghoul that know. Cool, yeah, yeah. So um, that's a pretty exclusive club, and I was I was comfortable with that idea. What I'm not comfortable with is, first of all, the fact that he used the names. I didn't like that. That he specifically said who they were. For some reason, that was a bridge too far for me. I like the ambiguity of it. Um, that maybe he's lying. You know, whatever. Like yeah. I just did. The Joker. Uh, the Joker. Yeah. Mm. No, that the Joker used their names. That the Joker you said Bruce Wayne, oh, Barbara right. Gordon. You know, like I didn't love that he that he explicitly said those things. The Joker, like I said, he's a character that's about restraint, and in terms of the 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 way you write him, he's obviously a Looney Tune, mm. but you have to restrain yourself from exposing certain things. And Jeff Johns, I feel like, did not have restraint in this book um it so that's you saying that sort of helps me with something that maybe with four other people would have been pretty controversial and probably will be with you and our listeners as well i really felt like this this book was jeff johns doing his best alan moore in what sense uh so you just so to go off uh, what you just said, you've got to be restrained when you're doing the Joker. In the Killing Joke, fucking the Joker rapes Barbara Gordon, uh, and sits on top of a mountain of naked baby dolls with a clown army that humiliate Commissioner Gordon. I don't know that I would call that restraint. No, but. but what furthers that for me is like the their conversation, Bruce, uh, Batman and Joker's conversation in the uh, the truck, the the police van. It felt to me like the beginning of the Killing Joke, where they're in the the prison cell and Batman's trying to lay it all out. Uh, on top of that, there's you know the the part of. Uh, you know, the the Bruce Wayne. I, what do you think I am? A regular superhero? I did it 30 minutes ago. Mm. It just, uh, to me, it just, eh, on top of the nine panel grids and the, the doomsday clock of it all, it just, it just felt, it didn't feel like Jeff Johns. It felt like Jeff Johns trying to do something else. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't really speak to that. Um, I don't know what he was going for in that regard. Uh, when I said the thing about restraint, what I meant was more like, you know, not telling the audience too much. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I get what you mean, because you want to keep that ambiguity with the Joker. Does the Joker actually know Batman is Bruce Wayne? Does the Joker actually know Barbara Gordon is Batgirl? I get what you mean. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's how that read to me, though. Yeah, I, I just I don't. 
I think Johns has a, a an uncanny understanding of the DC universe as a whole. I think though that 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 played against him. It felt like he had a thin idea, and he wanted to really just explore the the general concept of how Batman, Barbara, and Jason were, um, you know, ruined by the Joker mm. and them dealing with that trauma. And to me, that's very compelling on its face. You don't even need the Joker in that book to mm. tell that story. Um, and then I feel like he was like, well, this needs something major. So he tacked on all of the things that happened in this book that made me dislike it. Mm. And that made, I mean, clearly made you dislike it as well. Um, so that, that was bad for me. I, those things I didn't appreciate. Here's something that I think will probably end up being uh, arguably more controversial, but I think I liked is the Joe Chill stuff. Um, so in this book and across the three Jokers, we see that Joe Chill is dying. Uh, he's got cancer. He's, you know, really messed up. The Jokers capture him and they basically want to turn him into the Joker, a Joker, um, because they want to have a version of the Joker who is um, essentially responsible for the Batman's biggest pain. And so if they could fuse, you know, here's the Joker responsible for the death of Jason Todd, which is Batman's greatest failure, with fused with Joe Chill, who's responsible for Bruce's greatest pain, that would create the ultimate Batman villain. Um, that is whatever. But the, the part of this where Joe Chill is actually repentant for, for what mm -hmm. he did and that he's been writing these letters that were never sent, he couldn't finish it, but he, but he does want to apologize to Bruce Wayne for what he did to him, how he ruined his life like that, how it was never... What he did was never meant to be that in Bruce's life. You know, he was a, a very poor person who didn't have anything, and he envied the um, the Waynes for who he thought they were. He thought that they were just these rich scumbags who lorded their money over people, and he wanted to take away something from them. And that's all it was. And I feel like that is a story that is, first of all, very relevant. Um, in the sense that, you know, a lot of people look at rich people with disdain mm -hmm. and, you know, we don't always know what's on the other side of, of, of that money. Um, and sometimes it is a scumbag, but other times it's not. And he said that he realized or he learned later that the Waynes were actually good people and that he felt guilty about it ever since. I thought that that was actually a beautiful, a beautiful story and that Bruce was able to, it seems like, forgive him. In this in this book, I I can't I honestly can't think of like much better that you could do in terms of like dealing with the Joe Chill aspect of Bruce Wayne and like writing the final chapter on that like letting that die forever. He does die here, so hopefully we never see him again. Um, hopefully, it, it is comics. But <laughs> what did you think about that? No, I, I definitely agree with you. I, I don't even hate on its face what the Jokers were trying to do. Had they succeeded, I would have hated that. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, but I think that part of this story, I think, was actually one of the, the more tasteful things this book does. 
and I think I think I think that's where the Johns of it all really shines. And that, and it's like, think about the responsibility that he had with this book. I mean, he put himself in the position, but like you're dealing with several elements of Batman that are kind of like, I don't want to say untouchable, but that you have to tread lightly with. Joe Chill, um, anything with Barbara Gordon, I feel like people, fans are very sensitive. And then the Joker stuff. And unfortunately, I, I don't think he necessarily handled the Joker stuff with grace. The Barbara Gordon stuff, a lot of people have been upset with, but the Joe Chill thing, I actually think he really handled well. Um, and that's, that's what I will try to take with me from this book. I don't want to hang on to, to my negative feelings. I want to hang on to the positive stuff, and that's something I felt really positive about. Yeah, I just wonder if that couldn't have been couched in a better story. <laughs> of course it could have. And, that, and that's the... That's the unfortunate thing about this is like we've both said like the well at least i said the characterization was really strong i thought mm. um and then the joe chill stuff was strong there were elements of the joker stuff that was cool if you just for me for my money if you take out the three jokers oh we're going to create all these different jokers and we're going to define the origin of the joker and blah 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 if you take all of that stuff out and you let this story be way more simple and down to earth I really think you have a classic. We were asked um, last week on the show, what makes a story forgettable versus something that's like must read that you end up talking about for a long time. That's the difference. This story did too much and it, it, it didn't, it didn't stick the landing. I don't even, it didn't stick the landing. And now retroactively, the rest of the book is not good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we, we, we do also have to talk about like, the way things resolve for Barbara and for um, Jason, Batman obviously comes to, you know, heal himself through his interaction with Joe Chill. Uh, Jason Todd, though, he and Batman have a, a pretty bad interaction. Um, you know, Batman is frustrated with Jason for, for, for killing the Joker. Um, and Jason's kind of like, hey, man, you can't rat me out because if you guys do that you're gonna have to reveal your identities and i know you don't want to do it so you're gonna have to let me rock and um he ultimately leaves town he he wants a relationship with barbara she's not interested in that that's not why she kissed him that's not what she feels for him and he jason her. Was, was holding on to right uh jason was holding on to that idea as something that could um allow him to move beyond his pain similar to how in the dark night um batman clings to rachel dawes and the promise of a relationship with her as something that could pull him out of his darkness mm. jason was using barbara in a similar way and she's like i, I don't want to i'm not going to be that that's not who i am we're not that's not for us and that sets jason off on a different path um because he is left with his pain and he's the only one of the three who doesn't have a path towards healing. How do you feel about that? Oh, I don't care. I think he should be still dead. Oh, so. all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I said the last time we reviewed this that I, I didn't like the characterizations of Barbara and Jason. At, well, and Bruce, for that yeah. matter. Um, they pulled it out 
in this one with Bruce, except for that last thing. Um, Barbara, I don't even know what her story arc is here, other than smashing a camera into the Joker's face, which I guess is I, I can I can imagine would be healing. But I ultimately, <laughs> to me, I I still feel like my criticism stands. She was used mainly as a a romantic device. Um, whether or not she accepted, you know, is you know sort of beside the question. For Jason, that was his intent. Um, and you know, that was his his end goal for this thing, and it didn't pan out. Um, and I think that sucks for Jason. His even acknowledgement of Barbara and Batgirl in general is well past anything that this is. Hmm. So I don't if anything, like it this like I between Barbara and Jason, I I didn't feel that, like there was much growth for them. I think Barbara is well past the point where she would be majorly affected, and I think this was well. Okay, yeah. Let me let me take back what I said just now about Barbara. Her portrayal here with the Joker shows more healing, which we that's been a consistent argument. Through our episodes, not necessarily for me, but um, I think overall, I think we're correct that she is the healed one. But I just, I don't, the way Jason sort of fits into that, and not even necessarily as he's part of it, but wants to be, or that just didn't, that didn't work. Yeah, I think that there is a, you know, a, a potential like meta reading of it where it's not that he wants her, it's that he wants what she has. Um, but again, you know, it's not, it's that's not explicitly present. Mm. So, um, ultimately, I have to say that this is this series did not serve her. Um, no. it didn't, um, it didn't add any value to her character. It didn't expose anything. And that's to be expected in a story that's about grief when she ain't grieving. Um, but in light of, in lieu of that, there wasn't anything to say anything about her character. So, um, you know, I was a little disappointed that the final note for her is like her conversation with her dad, where he's like, you know, I'm cool with you. I'm cool with Batman, but you really shouldn't be around uh, Red Hood. And she's like, I don't need you to tell me that, Dad. And it's like, first of all, do they? I don't. Did that happen? <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, but it's no, like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that that moment happened. Yes, but did did the identity thing? Is that? Oh, do we right. Know that? Yeah. 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 Like that was very weird, and I didn't like it. Again, there's too much like secrets being revealed for absolutely no reason. Um, and also, like. What does he know about it? Why, why, like, why would he, I, I don't know. Why would he say that? Like, why would he say that to her? Um, does he know that they have some type of thing going on? Like, he didn't see them kiss, so why? I just don't get it. I, well, I, I would imagine that he knows that the Red Hood minimum is an antihero. You know, he's, 
he's not on Batman's level in terms of guys you can trust. Right. Um, and if he has the fatherly suspicion that Babs is Batgirl, you know, I it was probably just a, a fatherly warning of eh, maybe uh maybe don't don't hang out with that guy. Let's just talk about the art real quick before we uh move on. Um it's Jason Fabok. I thought it was, you know, very good, very impressive. Um he is I I believe he's a superstar artist. Um and I think he showed off throughout this series. Mm. I would say that um this issue didn't give him like so many spectacular things to do, but there are some very visually impressive uh pages here. Just this this kind of battle between um one of the one of the jokers and Batman I thought mm. was pretty nice um and 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 you know shout outs to Brad Anderson um as well like this is just a very well uh put together book from a coloring angle um you know the, the, just such a such a great looking book um you know like every on every level um but but again, you know, like I don't have anything to say that's that's different than um what we've been saying about Brad's art, which is just that it's it's wild. And I honestly, there were some pages where I think I was more impressed by how great the color was. Also. Sure. Yeah. Um, like even just like 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 I love this. It's it's very simple, but I just think Joker's hair looks really good. Yeah. Um like the green against the red, uh, it's very poppy. So um, I like that. It's a good looking book. I think it's interesting that Fabok isn't interested in not showing off Batgirl's butt. You know how you know how Batman's cape just goes down. Mm-hmm. There's not a panel in here where if it's behind Batgirl, we're not looking at her butt. Well, dude, now you've got me intrigued, man. In in just about every one, her cape is sort of swept to the side. Well, okay, so I got past one panel where I didn't see her butt. Uh, where? That's okay. That is her. That is one cheek. Uh, it's the it's the panel where the Joker is like taking a picture of her or whatever, and she's battling off like a fireball that's that's or an explosion behind her, something to that effect. Mm. Um. So yeah, there was no but there. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not gonna go through the whole the whole book to see if you're right. I believe it. Uh, artists typically do like to show off what she's got going on back there. Um, it reminds me. It reminds me of um, Brad Meltzer did an interview. I don't remember who it was with, but he was talking about he was talking about Ed Benet when he was working on when Brad Meltzer and Ed Benet were working on Justice League. And he was he was talking about how how uh, you know artists have a thing they like to draw, and he said Ebony, that man likes to draw women's asses. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, you ready to talk about uh, ten of swords? Stasis? Yeah, anything to get this taste out of my mouth. All right, so. Let's start with you. What'd you think about this one? Uh, I liked it. I, I like that it's called stasis because nothing really happens. Yeah, I was <laughs> conflicted. 
I was majorly conflicted, and I, I, you know, when I don't know what I think, I try to see if I can, if I can help be helped to form my opinion by looking mm-hmm. at reviews and whatnot. And I saw a review that said, uh, "aptly named." This book is aptly named. Yeah, and I completely agree. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, I think what it does, I think it does really well, uh, because what it does is it's it's showing the other side getting their swords, which, frankly, thank God that happened here. Because if that were drawn out anymore, I think that would be uh, intolerable. Yeah. But the fact that it was one, maybe two pages max for each one, I think that I think that worked out okay. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I thought that that was handled pretty well. They're the villains, you know. We're not. We don't necessarily care about them as much, uh, so we didn't need all that. Um, Did you know Gorgon was going to be the other two swords? The what? The grass cutter and the um, the other one. Yeah, the I guess God Killer. No, um, yeah, I don't. I don't feel like so. There are eight people, eight eight swords, and then Gorgon has two of them, plus two. So that's ten swords. That's pretty badass. Uh, well, that part I'm not arguing. I'm just saying. I frankly, I would have liked one more issue with Gorgon to learn more about those swords. Yeah, I don't get why he didn't get an issue, or or like even like a portion of an issue. I like I I I saw that and I went. Did I miss something? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't actually think that was well handled. Um, I think Gorgon getting his swords. Like, if you want us to care, right? Because the, the argument last week was, um, you know, they're trying to make us care. Well, then why would you leave out someone's origin of their swords yeah. or how they got the swords? Um, otherwise, this issue is technically well done. It, it, the way that it's um, paced and the way that the stories are broken up, mm. but, you know, there's the, the story about Saturnine and, you know, all that crap. Um, the story about the, uh, the, <laughs> the sword bearers of Araco and, you know, how they have their own little prayer Prophecies circle or whatever. That... So remember how disturbed we were about uh, fucking Rockslide or whatever his name is, and how the thing is made out of his body. They did it worse. <laughs> the bad guys did it worse. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty messed up. Um, it's a it's a prayer circle or a ritual circle of of, of bodies of of bodies. Yeah, yeah, that's not that's... not one guy's body. No, there's like a lot of bodies. Minimum 50. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciated the fact that uh, Arako is similar to Krakoa in that it has its own, like it has agency, it's, it has its own yeah. personality, and that it has a speaker as well. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, element. Um, the fact that it was crying about the fact that it wants to be reunited so badly with Krakoa. I think it, it shows Krakoa's motivations as well. I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. 
I mean, you know, how do you personify not personify an island? Give it a wife, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, and I, and there's like, I guess parallels there too, between, uh, what apocalypse is dealing yeah. with. Um, so, so that was pretty cool. I like to get to spend more time with these characters. Um, you know, they were kind of nameless fate. They were, they weren't nameless, but they, we didn't know much about them. Um, and the, so they just came across as goons, the sword bears. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this issue did put in some work to give us more of an idea of who they are, which I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, I thought this panel was super cool. The one where they're, they're all together finally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pog or Pog is cool. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> like, he's just cool. I don't know. Fucking he is what he is. He's Pog or Pog. Yep. Um, Fucking six arm crocodile, man. That's just, I just love that design. Um, I, okay. So, then there's the portion with, you know, the, the mutants. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, like, this whole tarot card element, I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. I don't know. I don't especially know what it is. It's fascinating to me. Okay. Maybe it's the use of it as a storytelling device. Like, I would be interesting to hear what they're doing. And if, like, they're using, and this will probably be silly and not true at all, but, like, if they're using, like, a legitimate tarot card reading to sort of plot the way, or if they're just, you know, doing the cards for what the story is, I just find it really interesting. I think I would if this were like if if they had a function um because ultimately these tarots are for us right like they're clues that you know are not necessarily clues but like oh they add to the mystery like which how does this represent storm what is this leading towards and it gives us something to think about and that's fine but they don't do anything else and so that makes them like if you think about in story right like forget anything else just accept this as a real thing what reason would there be for saturnine to be giving them tarot cards i mean it's a land based of magic though so like if you know if if the tarot cards do their function and I don't know what tarot cards do, so I don't know what their function is. Then I guess tell it they tell the future. You could rest easy, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I I I don't know. Um, like like the one with um, Captain Britain, Betty. Mm-hmm. Yep, Betsy. Betsy, or, thank yeah, you. Betsy, yeah. Uh, you know she's got nine swords in her. Even if she doesn't know what um, tarot card, uh, you know, tarot readings are, knows what that card means, I would find that distressing. Me too. Um, And I do find it distressing. But then, you know, you have characters like Cypher who's, I don't know, getting ready to make out with somebody in his card. That's all right. 
So in the back, they tell us what the cards essentially mean. And so you brought up um, Betsy, and hers is the Nine of Swords. It says, this is for when you are ruining yourself with your own fears and nightmares. But as they say, just because you are paranoid does not mean they are not after you. Not many of the cards are bad, but this is a bad card. So something bad's going to happen to Betsy. Okay. Well, and we (laughs) we already know that Saturnine doesn't like her. Right. So, I mean, it could even just be that, yeah, Saturnine gave, even if you don't look into the future of it, yeah, Saturnine gave her a shitty card where she gets stabbed a bunch. Right. Um, in the case of Apocalypse, we'll get to like what his card was and how that played into the story in a minute, but it, it says he got the lover's card, right? The lover's. It, it showed him and his wife, and it says... This card is indeed a tale of lovers, but they have been lovers. The presence of this card can portend a great test where there was once harmony. Okay, that's cool. Um, based on the way the issue ends, do we need to see the card? Like it's it's just when you when so when you don't know what they are, when you have no clue what what the hell of a, a, a two of a nine of swords means, it's ominous, but you have no idea what to make of it. But then when you find out what it means, then it's like, okay, so something bad's going to happen to Betsy. I feel like that's a Hickman device, though. He can be very flippant about things like that. It's a Teeny Howard device, actually. So, so you think? The, All right. Yeah. So, the, well, it, it's actually something I, have, I just know. Um, so, in interviews, Teeny has said that she, in her personal life, is really um, into tarot and stuff like that yeah um not like she's not some big believer but she just she likes to do it and it just so happens that in the first issue of uh house or the first or second you see the um uh xavier and oh my god moira Mm. are at that like that that carnival or whatever and there's the the different tarot things but but they're not they're not tarot the way this is. Um, and so because I, of yeah. that, Teeny was like, oh, well, I'm into tarot. Let me infuse that into Excalibur. And so she did so. And then that kind of evolved into being a bigger part of, of this story uh, as it unfolded. She did an interview. I don't remember. I think it was with Newsarama. Could be wrong. But I read it a while ago and she talked about this. That, yes. That part I'm not arguing i'm saying like um that line that he says that is written here not many of the cards are bad but this is a bad card that's a very hickman line i see he can in in like little things like that he can be very flippant about like the obvious right i see what you mean um let's so so this really is a one a one moment story in my in my opinion this issue uh and that moment really is the last one where apocalypse is kind of frustrated he's done with these games you know he does he's annoyed that saturnine gave him a, a, a tarot card like what's the point of this and he felt mocked i think by the fact that it showed him and his wife mm. um and so she invites him to go to her next meeting because she's a very busy woman also a very tall woman um, they brought her Hell height yeah. back in this issue, as I was very grateful for. Um, but you know, they go to the next meeting, and of course, 
um it's with the 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 person who's wearing the the mask of a man mm. and it it ends up being apocalypse's wife genesis was that her name genesis yeah yeah um wow I think we all knew, or well, I shouldn't say that. I was pretty confident that she wasn't dead. Last week I said she's oh, yeah. allegedly dead. I um I think that was pretty clear. Yeah. Well, Marco was arguing that she was that Marco's she was an dead. idiot. He doesn't even he doesn't know how any of this works. <laughs> um and you know, she's not dead. She actually switched sides. And her reasoning, the survival of the fittest. Okay. Damn cool hat. <laughs> um, that does turn things on their head a little bit. Will Apocalypse be willing to cut down his wife in order to win this this tournament? Um, I like that. Mm. I'm into it. But that's it. I don't really feel like anything else happened here. Go ahead. I was going to say I I can't remember if i said this when we first met them but that uh sword bearer that is um the unbeaten iska iska the unbeaten i it's just such a her mutant power is literally that she can't lose that's cool as fuck it is um how are they gonna make her lose i don't know i love it <laughs> yeah um, uh but yeah no i agree i agree with everything you said there's n- very little meat right now in this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say I did like the scene with, so I like the scene a lot with Red Root. Um, she's yeah. the one that speaks to, she can speak to Arako. I really enjoyed the one with uh, Bay the Blood Moon. She, uh, she like, I, I believe she's the one where she's like, um, they're trying to they're trying to sell her and she's just like uh yeah like if it's a battle i'm down there's gonna <laughs> be blood right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i really like the uh uh the white sword uh Oof. you know meant that was Man. a heavy scene yeah and and i could have see you know how everyone got it got an issue to themselves i could have really rocked with the whole issue of this because the white sword sequence and, and all that type of stuff, so compelling. Even even if that, yeah, even if that were outside of the X of Swords event, like if this was X Men Twelve or something, yeah, it would have been dope as hell. Yeah, I'm I'm completely with you. I feel like there's something there, and if you're gonna make an event twenty two issues, I feel like you could do one of those issues on, on something like that. I mean, but this Krakoa, Arako, Okora situation, I think is going to be something that plays through this age of X-Men altogether. Like, I think it's going to outlive X of Swords. Oh, yeah. I, I, so, I completely agree. But I don't think these characters will necessarily. I bet this one does. <laughs> Well, yeah, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who ends up dead. Um, yeah, I mean, good characterization. I really enjoyed the various uh, different sword bearers of Arako. Our mutants are underserved in this issue, but it really wasn't uh, like it really wasn't about them. Mm-hmm. Um, this issue really felt more like a 
like a stopgap. Like here we are. Let's let's once again establish what's going on. What are the stakes? And let's flip one, you know, flip one card and show you what's underneath. And and that being, of course, um, you know, Genesis still being alive. The filler, the filler episode before the next, you know, before the tournament starts. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, and that's cool. I guess I was looking forward to this issue. I don't want to say I feel disappointed, but I don't feel fulfilled either. I get that. Yeah, I could see that. Um, this issue did have a bomb creative team. Hickman and Howard wrote the deal. Uh, Laraz and Azrar were on art. Marta Gracia colored the whole thing because he is amazing. And Clayton Cowles, of course, uh, did letters all the way through. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the art is crazy. <laughs> like, it's just what, what can you really, what more can be said about the art of Ten of Swords? I mean, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I in particular love the, the art and the colors on the, uh, the page where they, are teleported to the where our mutants are teleported to the uh the starlight citadel mm-hmm. i think the colors and the you know the 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 transportation sequence there is tremendous um are you, were you referring to this page this this one here uh no 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 this one Woof. yeah that is quite a page look at captain britain As, look at how cool he looks well, or, even, sorry, Captain. Uh, what's his name now? Uh, Avalon. Yeah. No, like the other one, the other A one. Yeah. Anyway, something. even like when you like, if you scan the page, like you know, as you're reading, like it would go down, and just the way the way that looks is just incredible. Yeah. Um. So much. So much thought. So much attention to detail. The point. The the page that I was pointing out that I thought was the one you meant to point out, I also think was really cool. Um, how you can see them on like on 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 either side, like they're 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 mirrors of each other or whatever. I really like that. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I know I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was an awesome page. Um yeah, it's just a pretty book. There's just so many so many great moments. I'm I'm from a visual perspective, I don't think I'm enjoying anything that I'm reading more than than this. Pilaraz and Marta Gracia are the fucking team. Yeah. As uh, as they used to say in the long box, top guys. They are top, top guys. guys. Yeah, you're right. You got any more to say about this before we close out? Nah, I'm into it. I'm still here for it. Want to see where it goes. So cool. Uh, let us know what you guys are reading. If you're reading these books, what do you think about them? I'm sure someone out there listening is reading the Ten of Swords stuff. So what do you think about Stasis? And are you reading, this is the biggest thing, are you reading every issue of this event? Or are you kind of cutting in and cutting out based on what you were reading before? Like if you were only reading X-Men, is that how you're reading this event? Or are you buying everything? 22 issues is a lot to pick up. So are you cutting anywhere? I'm very curious about that. And what do you think about the way Three Jokers ended? Are you satisfied or did it leave you wanting? Let us know what you guys think. You can hit us on social media at the Comics Pals. You can write in at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. That's Comics Pals with an S. Make sure you guys are including that S so we get the mail. 
Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you. We appreciate you. Hit that subscribe button. If you're not a YouTube user, please go over and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Comics Pals, youtube.com slash The Comics Pals. It just helps us out a lot. Um, we really appreciate that. And then, of course, join our Discord. And if you are a YouTube user, go to Apple. Leave us a review. That helps us a lot there. It's huge. Yes. The system is broken. We have to play the game. But if you could do that, that would help more people see us and help the show go a lot longer. Yes. Not in episode true. length, but like, well, in longevity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If we don't get, if we don't get a like a week, we're just going to quit the show. Just kidding. Um, I'm not. Join our Discord. Come hang out with us. We're always having a blast over there, whether you want to talk about comics or video games or like something weeby or even wrestling, um, whatever floats your boat. So let's get into the plugs. Kale. That wrestling channel seems like it's dying. Ain't nobody want to talk about wrestling. It's all, <laughs> it's Chainsaw Man all day over there. If you want to read wrong. Chainsaw Man, get the Shonen app. You, you, two bucks a month, you want it. Uh, you can find me uh, on Instagram at Toto Into. That's T O T O I N T O W. Um, I'm selling Ray Bands over on my Tumblr. So hit me up if you want some of those. Um, you can find my work at Kaylord.com. That's C A L E W A R D.com. You can find Pete at loud underscore Pete. He uh, does uh, the loop cast, the pots, pots cast, the pots cast, where he talks about Nintendo games. Mm hmm. And with such a specialized topic, I don't know how they do a show every week. But that's what I thought about us, too. And here we are, 200-some-odd 200, 200 episodes in. We're still going. I think if we had done the show the way that um, some, of, some of us originally wanted to, that would have been a lot harder. Um, remember how, like, originally? Nope. nope. Okay. <laughs> not at all. I'm not trying to stop you from saying whatever you're about to say. I don't remember. <laughs> Um, Marco and Pete wanted the show to be an image on like a not an image only, but an indie focused show. Oh, mm -hmm. and I think that is a struggle I have with the show often, but I get it. I, I, I've always been able to concede that. Listen, that ain't where the, the listeners are. <laughs> <laughs> um, as for me, I you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Um, I am currently still going through my read of House and Powers, um, reread, I should say. And uh, I bought Blue and Green, so I'm excited to read that as well. Mm. Um, I uh, hope you guys had a happy Halloween. Hopefully, you stayed safe. There's lots of crazy stuff going on out there, and obviously, there's still a massive virus. So, be well, stay safe, and until next time, take care, guys. We have the Comics Pal signing off. See you next week. No bit at the end of it this time. Wow, John. I Listen, there's only two of us. I can only carry the load, uh, <laughs> you know, by myself for so long. <laughs>